Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald faced truth. So let me get this straight Chet Holmgren, Gonzaga star, one of the top picks in the NBA draft, is now potentially on the sideline for this season. And, uh,. Got hurt in a pro-am event. Not in an NBA arena, not under the supervision of an NBA team, but, man, I was following like everybody else was when Jamal Crawford put together his event in the Seattle area. LeBron signed on to play. Steven, did you see that, how exciting that was? Like, you know, fans probably loved it. Yeah, I did. They had a lot of players. Uh, Paolo Banchero, who was the number one overall pick, was there. Uh, we've seen a lot of pro-ams this offseason, uh, and this was a big one. Well, it was a big one and a potentially big injury to Chet Holmgren. I have to think his agent is going to be furious about this. Uh, we have provisions that we see in uh, player contracts in the NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, that will prohibit players from bungee jumping, riding a moped, doing all these things that could potentially get them hurt. And it wasn't that long ago. I guess it was that long ago, 15, 16, 17 years ago, that uh, Greg Oden was in Portland and the Trailblazers made him the uh, top pick in the NBA draft, and then subsequently watched him get hurt. Was it Dance Dance Revolution? Uh, and Odin later turned up, I don't know if you guys remember this, he turned up at a 24-hour fitness in Tualatin, that Lance Armstrong, it's not about the bike, 24-hour fitness that was in uh, that was in uh, Tualatin there. And Greg Odin popped up there playing in a pickup game. And I remember the Blazers being really furious about it. But we have seen players sort of take command of their brand, take command of what they do in the offseason, diversify themselves. Hell, we've watched Damian Lillard become a rapper and a singer and an all-star who participates in every event and a business person and a philanthropist and an entrepreneur. And we don't blink twice at it. And yet here's Chad Holmgren heard in this event. Where do you guys stand on this? If you were the team that picked a player and subsequently saw a serious or significant injury that happens to a player that is potentially playing in a pro-am event or a summer jam or whatever you want to call it, how would you feel as that team? You know, it's it's tough, John, because DeJounte Murray talked about this earlier this summer, how he said more NBA players need to do it because it gives some of the fans easier access to the players. Maybe they can't afford to go to the games when it's the regular season, things like that, and so they can afford to go and watch them play in the summer and really get more of an on-court experience because they're usually playing in high school gyms or small college gyms, and so they're right on top of the action. So you are right. like It helps their brand a lot, and so I think for the players – it's good for their brand that they're going out there. You know, they're either they're pretending to you know be f- friends of the fans, or they're just getting out there. But as a team, like if I'm drafting a guy number one, number two overall, there's no way that I want him to play in a super competitive uh, game like this with referees. Like I know you're going to go out and work out with other players, and you're going to scrimmage with them. 
But to go out and have a full-blown game with fans, I don't know, man. If, I, if I'm if i in charge of the team, I don't want that. Yeah, we've seen these games that take place, and a lot of times they don't end up uh, – they don't end up uh, even going the full distance. I had a friend today who said, "Hey, they they called that uh, they called that uh, Jamal Crawford game in like this, the midpoint of the game because it was getting a little too rough." And you know, it, granted, they're holding these are basketball players and these are players that work out in their uh, on their own in their off season. And like civilians, a lot of them are in charge of what they do in the off season, and a lot of them are very responsible because they work with trainers, they work with a shooting coach, they work with a strength and conditioning coach and a nutritionist. They realize that they're many corporations, like there's so much money at stake. But I wonder about a guy like Holmgren who's coming into the league, wants to prove himself, has heard all the doubts, has heard all the talk, uh, and he's also, oh, a big guy. And if I'm a Blazer fan, it you know, let's just say hypothetically the Blazers had ended up uh, drafting Chet Holmgren and finding themselves at the top of that lottery. Let's say the tank job worked. Uh, I would be uh, livid right now with him going out and doing that. And, look, I'll take your phone calls, 503-417-7575. How concerned are you about that? How angry would you be? How upset would you be as an NBA team? I also think that you have to also co- kind of take it as a case-by-case scenario. Like, anything can happen. We've seen freak injuries. Like, I don't know what specifically happened with Greg Oden. Like, we never got to the bottom of the fact of whether or not it was, you know, was he playing the Dance Dance Revolution video game like everybody thought he was? Was it just a case of a guy who maybe had, he's a big guy, and as you begin to play in games and you begin to uh, lumber around out there at 7 foot tall and 260 pounds that you are more prone to injury? But I feel really bad for the team that picked Chet Holmgren. I feel bad for Holmgren. But in the end, man, what are you doing being part of this thing? Let's go to the phone lines. Jerry's on I-84. Jerry, weigh in on the conversation. Well, it's interesting. Some, some of these guys, as we know over the years, are like just biomechanical nightmares waiting to happen when you're as big as Odin and other guys uh, you know, seem to be able to hang in there and take care of themselves. But and you get older and you get more responsible for that. But is there some kind of insurance policy these uh, teams are taking out? And is somebody putting on the reading glasses and just pouring over the fine print now? Or how does something like that work? Yeah, I, look, the players do have – there is a provision with every NBA contract for a career-ending injury. It, in this case with Chet Holmgren, I don't know what the latest report is. Stephen, do we have anything new on this Holmgren front, or what are we talking about? Uh, nothing official yet. It is pretty – it seems like it's going to be a torn ligament. So, I mean, that's a pretty serious injury, but there's nothing confirmed as of yet. Yeah, the, the Crawford Pro-Am deal was held at basically a, a high school gymnasium. And, look, I remember – during the lockout that the NBA had years ago, one of these events got held up at the Child Center. And James Harden came, and Kevin Durant came. And it was a fun event to go to and watch. And the players walked in like it was an AAU tournament, and Kevin Durant had a backpack on, I'll never forget it, and Dre beats headphones, and he went and he played. And it was pretty cool to see these guys play up close, but... At no point of that event did I feel like it got so heated or spirited that anybody was in any risk of injury. It was just a bunch of NBA players trying to stay in shape. You kind of understood what they were doing. We're talking about a league now where these contracts are guaranteed. A, they are obviously multi-million dollar deals. Uh, the players probably feel a little less 
leery about participating when they know they have a guaranteed contract. They're going to get paid either way. But if I'm a team, I don't want my guys playing in this thing. In fact, I, don't, I probably don't want them doing anything in the offseason that might jeopardize their health. Let's go out to the phone lines. Let's go to Vancouver. Steve is in Vancouver, wants to talk about Chet Holmgren. Hey, John, how are you doing today? Doing well. Listen, I would, in my trade, I'm a union plumber. And if I work outside my trade non-union, I'm going to get fined by the union. Don't these NBA contracts have a no-compete clause? I mean, for that, and could they lose their signing bonuses that they sign when they're on their rookie deal? The, those contracts, I've looked at the CBA, and I, I haven't looked at it through that lens specifically, but it's, it's a tough contract. It is very pro-player. Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that, like, you know, you've got a non-compete. Certainly there are people in other uh, areas of their jobs that have non-competes, but I, I think the argument for the players would be, hey, it's a pro-amateur event. Uh, Holmgren probably wasn't getting paid to be in the event. He's going to justify it by saying, look, it's a good off-season workout for me to get in there against some guys that are some NBA guys, some former NBA guys, some fringe NBA guys, and get a workout. I'm doing that stuff in an open gym setting anyway. I remember years ago I went down to Houston to in the off-season, and uh, I remember John Lucas was running a camp, and Damon Stoudemire was hanging out there, and it was Damon Stoudemire and TJ Ford and a bunch of uh, some of the guards in the league who were the more talented guards who were working out and – playing against each other, and the competition was fierce. I mean, it was spirited. They, like, they weren't going easy on each other. Like, they had respect for each other. It didn't get violent or, you know, physical or anything, but it was like, you know, there was a risk when you walked into the gym and went to play these things. So I'm hesitant to say, hey, at all costs, players shouldn't be doing anything because there's a certain amount of this that really does lend itself to preparing the players and getting the players in shape for the NBA season. But... When you are playing in a pro-am event, I wonder if, and Stephen, you may be able to back me up here with your experience working with the Blazers, and I wonder if you get some fringe guys who see a kid like Chet Holmgren on the court and go, that guy was a high pick. I want to go prove myself against that guy. Yeah, I think you're right, and I have a little bit of experience for this because I played basketball at Concordia, and we were in a pro-am uh, back in the day at Jefferson High School. And so, you know, I have a little experience in the Ime Udoka. That's when he just went over to the Spurs. Uh, he was in the same same league as we were. Uh, we were one of the worst teams. So when we played them, he actually didn't play against us. And I think it goes to your point where he saw it. And he was like, well, I don't want to play against the guys from Concordia where there's other, you know, professional guys who are playing overseas or other high D1 players that are in the league. So I think, like, in this situation, Chet's going against, you know, LeBron James and Paolo Benchero. Like, he's going against other high-caliber NBA guys. And so I think he felt like it was going to be okay and it wasn't going to get ultra-competitive and ultra-serious. But I'm with you. Like, you know, if you're, if I'm a guy and I'm playing in the Pro-Am and I'm going against Chet Holmgren, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a shot at him because when am I else am I going to get a shot at a guy who was the second pick in the draft? Yeah, so I, I, uh, yeah I want to dunk on that guy. Yeah, I want. I, so I, you got to be careful if you're an NBA guy, and I think I think for the most part, NBA guys are smart enough to realize that that they're not going to put themselves in that type of danger. But you just never know nowadays because you know sometimes they want to be on Twitter and they want to have a dunk on some nobody. I was uh, talking with Chael Sonnen, the UFC fighter, once upon a time, many years ago, and asked him, you know, what it's like for him when he goes out into a public setting. Let's say he, you know, he's out promoting a fight or let's say he's in Vegas for fight night and he happens to be in a club or somewhere and he talks specifically about having to kind of have your head on a swivel because every jackass who's in the club 
is going, that guy's a UFC fighter. He's legit, like, and wants to take a swing at you and, and get into an altercation or bump into you or spill a drink on you or is just looking for trouble. And so I think fighters are more in tune to see that. I know in baseball, you'll get pitchers and catchers that'll go out and throw. You'll get guys who'll take BP. But you're not playing, like, full games where guys are sliding into second base trying to break up a double play. In the NBA, I don't know if there's a great way to get yourself in game shape other than actually scrimmaging or playing games. I think you're right on on that. And so I, I think that these players look at these situations and it's kind of a win-win for them, right? You know, they can go out in front of the fans and they can look good uh, to all their fans, all the other players, and be out there in the public eye, but also getting in shape for the season. And so I think you are dead on with that point that – it's better than just working out and trying to build up stamina that way because it is a different it's a different uh, you know stamina that you need to have in game shape and just practice shape. You're, you're totally right on that. Let's go to Mike in Portland who has called into the show. Uh, welcome to the conversation. Go ahead. Hey John. Uh, first of all, man, uh, the NBA now is a joke, man, um, because you know uh, the one and done. These players are not developed. They're getting hurt, and they're getting hurt in a league that is soft. They don't do nothing but jump shots. How are you going to get hurt shooting three-point shots? Back in the day when uh, basketball was playground-style basketball, in the summertime, the NBA players went back to to the playground, and they played inner cities on the playground. They wasn't worried about getting hurt. There wasn't all of this, this stuff that you guys talking about. And so this tells you that the NBA has went downhill re- re- remarkably. They're weak. They're not strong players. The game is weak. And back in the day, you didn't have none of this nonsense, man. Talk to you later. Yeah, you know what? I actually agree with Mike to a certain extent. We, it came up on yesterday's show, and I think Sean said it. Uh, we were talking about kind of the news cycle of the NBA and how it's become year-round, and the Kevin Durant story was not a positive NBA story. So as much as the NBA loves to, like, hey, people are talking about us year-round, this isn't a positive NBA story having a player get hurt. This is one of the key assets of a team that was picking high in the draft who is now facing torn ligaments in his foot. Coming up, Merton Hanks. He's with the Pac-12. He's in charge of football. Let's talk some football with Merton Hanks next. Back to the Ball Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Well, we got some college football coming down the pipeline. I will be happy to be talking about football this season. Pac-12's got some big games. Utah is going to Florida. They're going to Gainesville in the opening week. Oregon's going to Atlanta to play Georgia. Oregon State is home against Boise State. I will be in Atlanta with the Ducks with us now to talk about football Merton Hanks, Pac-12 Associate Commissioner, former 49er, joining us. How are you, Merton? How's everything, John? Going well, man. I, I am, I'm excited to have some games be, you know, so we have something to talk about besides what college football is going to look look like. What has it been like for you? You're the, you're the guy in charge of football, and I don't think there's been enough talk about football. We need to get back to it. Well, I can't uh, agree with you more. Basically, it's business as usual from a, football operations standpoint. We're, we're getting ready for the season, uh, uh, doing our last uh, checks, as I like to say, uh, making sure we're all set and ready to go. Give us an idea, uh, you know, in the off season when last year ends, 
what you know do you have a, a to-do list that you create do you guys sit down and say okay these are some areas we really want to focus on and if so what is on that list in the off season well we, we we're always working on officiating that's uh that there basically is no off season in officiating where we're either grading a or, or upgrading our, our training, uh, uh, upgrading our roster. Uh, so that's a that's a 12 month a year uh, proposition uh, as we go along. Really looking forward to the group we have getting uh, uh, back out on the field, uh, and, and certainly believe we're ready to go there. And then, as you know, John, on a on a national level, there are just so many uh, 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 rules, regulations, bylaws that need review. Uh, do we want to continue? Uh, uh, with these things from a health and safety standpoint, uh, blocking below the waist uh, of being uh, effectively outlawed through uh, many people's efforts coming through the Football Oversight Committee. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time uh, in those areas as well. And then finally, uh, uh, taking a look at the future uh, from a scheduling standpoint uh, uh, on the NCAA level for our fans, uh, many games are scheduled many years out, but but, but uh, as you're getting ready to put together 2023's football schedule for the Pac-12, uh, uh, you, you got to take some things into account, who needs to play where, bye weeks, that type of thing. So always something to do in the football operations space. Give me an idea on scheduling. Let's talk about conference scheduling. Has there been a shift of mindset or discussion about how many conference games the Pac-12 should be playing relative, you know, to other conferences, or where do you stand on that? Well, uh, my my personal opinion is we've we've never wavered, and when I say we, myself and the commissioner, uh, George Kliokov, we've never wavered on the thought of getting to eight conference uh, uh, games. I know uh, my football coaches in the Pac-12 support getting to eight, and we just need to uh, effectively find a partner to do that. Uh, obviously, with the landscape. Uh, changing the way it is in regard to conference uh, realignment, that may be difficult to get done. But that we've we've never backed off of that position. Why eight? Why eight, why is eight the right number in your mind? Well, I, I think uh, uh, our our friends in, in other conferences will quickly realize that when you're playing nine conference games, and and look, uh, uh, as much as our fans like to beat up on the opposition, uh, everyone's pretty good in our league <laughs> on yeah. a certain level. Everyone has great coaching. Everyone's got uh, good to great student-athletes. And it's difficult to get through a nine-game schedule unscathed. Uh, I mean, when's the last time we've had a Pac-12 team playing a nine-game schedule undefeated? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it's happened. If it has, I don't, I don't know it off the top of my head. So it's, it's a difficult proposition, especially in, in the era of the CFP, where if you lose two games, you're effectively out of the running for CFP invitation. So uh, it, it makes it a little bit tougher to get done. Yeah, I go back to Oregon, I believe, is the last team to have a conference season where they went undefeated. That was back in 2010, undefeated in the regular season, but uh, really difficult to do, and you're right. And it puts a lot of pressure on the teams because let's use Utah as an example. they got to go to Gainesville, play an SEC team. I like Utah to win that game. It would be a great win for the conference, but – they sort of have to win it, given the makeup of the conference schedule right now, because otherwise you're facing a season where you you know you can't have another hiccup. Well, it's and you hit it right on the head. You want look if you're going to lose, you want quality losses. You know, you want close games, that type of game against 
teams that are perceived to be strong teams in a given year. Uh, I just think it's so difficult, you know, coming back to your original uh, question of nine games versus eight games and why we would prefer eight. I, I think we want to uh, give ourselves a better opportunity for CFP uh, invitations and, 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 and probably schedule uh, accordingly in that respect. Give me an idea of how soon you could get to eight. Could this happen as soon as next season, or what are we talking about? How hard is it? It's difficult because you need to find a partner to kind of get you there because if you're taking away a conference game, uh, uh, you need to make sure the game you're replacing with from a value proposition makes sense. And it's not just one of two teams. You're doing it for the entire conference. So you really need you really need a partner to get that done. So. We, we continue uh, uh, to have conversations, and, and we'll see what happens in the future with, with some of our peer conferences. Merton Hanks is with us, former 49er great, now the associate commissioner of the Pac-12 conference. From a football standpoint, you know, I, George Kwiatkowski came in and very quickly said we, you know, to the universities, hey, we want an investment in football. Have you seen an investment in football from the members? Absolutely. Uh, uh, when you look at the uh, – our, all of our coaches coming in from Lincoln Riley, we all can agree that was a significant investment by USC. The coach DeBoer up at University of Washington, uh, uh, keeping Coach Dickert at Washington State, I believe was important for uh, AD Pat Chung. Uh, we, we've got some, some folks that are, are showing the tangible commitment uh, by the institutions. Uh, when you, and when you say those folks, it's not just the head coach. It's their support staff. It's their assistant coaches. It's administration. Uh, 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 all of those things align, and quite frankly, they all cost money. And so we're, we're seeing uh, certainly the investment on the institution level. And, and I have to give the conference office credit, uh, uh, certainly in year two for me. Uh, I, I went to uh, uh, certainly then – uh, Commissioner Larry Scott and then uh, uh, Commissioner Kliokov and said, look, we need to invest uh, in football here at the conference office, and, and they've allowed me to do that. So uh, no question in my mind the Pac-12 is fully invested in the football space uh, and looking forward to seeing some of the dividends and wins this year and beyond. Yeah, last season it was tough. Uh, you know, I think you'd be the first to say the non-conference record was not good. It was historically bad. The bowl season was bad. What reason do fans have to expect that the football this year will be more competitive? I, 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 you said it best, and it's not lost, certainly, on our institutions. Uh, um, it simply just was not a good year uh, this past year for us. I, I think the records are obvious in that respect. I think that our coaches and our student-athletes have a lot of pride. I've, I've seen the quotes from uh, uh, players from, from Oregon State, for instance, uh, a young office lineman just lamenting uh, that he just didn't feel like he put forth his best effort in the L.A. Bowl, for instance, to uh, our, our seasoned coaches and, and, and Stanford coach David, as I call him, <laughs> coach David Shaw yeah. over at Stanford, you know, feel like, uh, I think he said at the media day, look, I'm just feeling like a tiger just kind of waiting in the weeds because he knows that last year wasn't, the best year for the Cardinals, and they know they can show and be better. So I, I expect all of our institutions going to have that, uh, 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 that that feeling, that that fight, and not just our institutions, our student-athletes. We are a better conference than what we showed this past year, and I look forward to, quite frankly, having uh, that taint removed with the games coming up this year.
Merton Hanks is with us. He is associate commissioner in the Pac-12 Conference, former 49er great, uh, number 36 in your program, uh, number one in your heart, all that. Merton, what has it been like for you and maybe for others working in the conference office, the distraction, the noise, the conference realignment, USC, UCLA, all that stuff going on while you're trying to do your job? Well, I think it's tough. I think that, uh, uh, you know, let's not sugarcoat it. It's a, it's a difficult deal. Uh, uh, when uh, uh, you see uh, longtime friends uh, and colleagues and, and conference mates uh, uh, getting ready to depart in, in two years' time in our L.A. school. So, uh, you know, we want to make sure that the student-athletes, the coaches, everyone associated uh, with those institutions uh, uh, understand that from a football operations standpoint, we are going to make sure and do everything possible to make sure those student-athletes just have a great experience and, and understand what it means to play in the Pac-12 and, and, and come out of that experience really feeling good about it. Uh, uh, I, can, I can relate to my time, ironically, as a, as a, uh, a Big Ten student athlete at the University of Iowa. And, and I look back, and now that I got a little gray on, in my hair and a little older, I look back at those times, and I really appreciated the effort uh, uh, that University of Iowa AD, coaches, staff, and, and, and fans, put in, in making sure my experience was a great one. So we, we know how to do it, and, and that's what we'll be focused on this year. Merton, you know, you mentioned Iowa and you were there, and I think, you know, you look at athletes today, and I talked to a lot of the players there. I think they are um, they're pleased that they have more options and more control over their eligibility and name, image, likeness, and the portal and all that. But it's awfully complicated, too. I wonder, as a guy who's played at a high level, who's been in a college system, had a great experience as a college player, would you have rather been in the system you were in back in the day where that was more stable? Or do you look at what the players are doing today and you go, hey, you know, it would be fun to have had the flexibility and the options? I, I, I laugh. It, it reminds me of, of uh, and this is, I've got my professional hat on for a second, John, so indulge me here. <laughs> okay. It reminds me of when I was at the 49ers and, and uh, at one point in my career, for the briefest of moments, I was the highest paid safety in the NFL uh, uh, before the next contract comes up. And, and I remember having a previous generation NFL player uh, uh, talk about, man, you guys are you guys are just making all the money and, you know, we have to work two and three jobs and still play football and those types of things. <laughs> so that's how I look at today's players. Oh, my goodness. Uh, name, image, and likeness has opened up a, 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 a system, quite frankly, in which they can capitalize uh, on their athletic achievements and, quite frankly, their partnerships uh, with the universities. I, I do think it's a difficult uh, row to hope. Uh, 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 being that young, if, if you can remember when you were, you know, 16, 17, 18, oh, coming into heavens. a, a collegiate season and, and, and having to make, you know, it, it, those type of decisions. And for our fans, I, the best way to equate it is uh, I, I look back on my days as a rookie coming into the 49ers. You've got to make decisions like you're 65, 66, 67 years old. You better have your will ready. You better have your trust ready. You've got to have a lawyer, accountant, all of these things, right, uh, 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 to give you hopefully sound advice on what direction you should go. So you've got all of these student athletes making these very adult decisions. And when, quite frankly, they're still young men and women. Um, in many ways, I don't envy their position. 
because I, I I was one of those people who needed to grow up a little bit uh, 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 in this world. Unfortunately, in in IL space, makes you grow up uh, immediately, and uh, it, it's it's a tough fit for some of our student athletes. It just simply is. Yeah, it takes an incredible amount of maturity, I think, for, from asking a lot of young people. Merton Hanks is with us, Super Bowl champion, four-time Pro Bowler. Put your football helmet on for a second. You had your executive hat on. Put your football helmet on. Give me an idea. A guy that uh, maybe uh, – do you, do you still have football dreams? Do you, do you have dreams where the ball's in the air or, you know, uh, Christian Okoye's coming around the corner and you got to tackle him? Or, you know, does Merton Hanks have football dreams? Ironically, around the beginning of every season, I do, and then it wears off. <laughs> <laughs> about the about the beginning of the year, and, and I think uh, any not just football, anybody that plays any sport for any length of time will tell you this: your body starts acting up a certain time of year because you're used <laughs> to being on that workout cycle, and yeah. and it's like, ooh, it's it's you know, for me, it was May, June, like okay. I always try to stay in some type of shape, but you know, you kind of have to take it up another notch and. You know, I'm I'm popping up at two and three in the morning and can't go back to sleep because it's you know you you you're you're ramping yourself up for the season. So I still get a bit of that from time to time. Yeah, you played a long time. I mean, when you look at your career, you come into the league in '91. You you leave it almost in 2000. I mean, that is a long run. It's it's top you know three percent of players for the duration that you played. Um, what, how did you know it was time to go? Uh, I, I'd say this about any any athlete. There's no athlete that actually gets tired of playing. They just physically can't get to the spots they need to get to uh, on the field. Um, I, I remember having a great conversation with uh, uh, Washington State great Drew Bledsoe, uh, uh, and, and that guy, uh, he can throw the football now and, and can throw the football today, but, but, but just physically can't get to – uh, uh, certain spots can't put the ball perhaps in the spots that he would like to put them in as well as he could say, you know, a few years earlier. So every, every athlete, uh, I think of whether it be football and, and look, I, I played with some of the most, uh, physically, uh, intense folks in regard to working out ever. I, I was looking at the, I was at recently at Brian Young, defense tackle for the 49ers just won the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So I went back to Canton to support him this year. Uh, uh, run into my good friend Terrell Owens, who is in phenomenal shape. Oh my goodness, <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous how good a shape this guy is in. Uh, 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 he's almost an anomaly. The rest of us are fighting off pot bellies and and and, and, and trying to uh, make sure that we're moving around okay. Bottom line, uh, certainly as a defensive back, and, and I would say this, John, for defensive players. If you're an offensive player, it's probably easier for you to eke out a little bit more time in the National mm-hmm. Football League because you know where you're going in respect to the snap count, routes, that type of thing. A defensive player is always re- reacting, and in my case, you're backing up, and then you're reacting coming up. So yeah. the, minute a defensive, the minute a defensive back understands that he can't get to the spots where he's supposed to be, uh, whether it's lateral quickness or just out and out speed, it's, it's time to shut it down because you can't. At that point, you can't effectively play. Anymore. We've uh, had uh, yeah, we've, we had a, we had Alex Molden on the show a few times, and I know you know him. And and he oh, he kind of yeah. he kind of commented that 
it was draft night, and he texted me, and he said, you know, it's draft night, and it's great. These guys' dreams are coming true. And he goes, but there's a whole bunch of veterans on these teams who are going, oh, crap. They just picked somebody at my position. Oh, oh. I, it, <laughs> one of the great things, uh, part of my, uh, when I was at the National Football League, and, and I would work with the colleges and go and speak and, and to the teams and so on and so forth, that would be the first thing I would say to them. I would tell them to look around the room. Uh, uh, here, I'll give you a great example. Uh, uh, Bob Stoops, when he was at the University of Oklahoma, for the fans, uh, you may not understand, Oklahoma used to be the University of Iowa South. When Bob Stoops was there, because he was a GA under Hayden Fry at the University of Iowa, when he got the job at OU, he took a bunch of coaches that either played at or coached at Iowa. At one point, you couldn't get on the University of Oklahoma's uh, uh, coaching tree as part of their staff unless you spent time at Iowa. That that was its fact. So I would come in and, and speak. Uh, obviously, I played at Iowa. Bob was my GA uh, at the time at Iowa. And and I'm, I'm going to show my age here. I had Adrian Peterson mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in, in the audience as a running back and Sam Bradford, I believe. Sam was number one overall at the quarterback position, if I remember correctly. And so I'm telling these guys, look, look around. You, you never worry about the people who are already in the room. You worry about the people that they're recruiting to replace you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's the mentality, uh, whether it's in the collegiate level or on the professional level. There's, this is, as I like to say, this is America. There's enough talent here. Uh, and our coaches and our recruiting coordinators and directors, they're good enough to go find it. So you always want to be playing your best. Uh, perform your best, whether it's in the classroom or on the field, because let's face it, they're looking to replace you at some point. So, so understand that, and, and that's just the reality of all sports, not just football. Merton Hanks is with us, former 49er, Seattle Seahawk, uh, currently the senior associate commissioner in charge of football for the Pac-12 conference. You mentioned officiating off the top of the interview. Um, what? steps what are the big steps that you can take and i watched it in the spring game i watched the officials work a little bit they were doing in the spring games they were all kind of working on you know rule changes and being in the right position and uh you know i I thought it was a fascinating study of the officiating but what can you do outside of that training can you recruit from other conferences can you still cut you know good officials from the other power five conferences what do you do well, one of, one of the things we, we do, and really every, every uh, certainly every major conference does, is we want to build a credible pipeline uh, of talent that we're training. We work not only with other conferences, but with the National Football League directly uh, in training because a lot of our mechanics are similar in that respect. That's why the National Football League is always coming to the Pac-12 to steal, as I like to say, to steal one of my officials to come work for them. I, I just lost another one to the National Football League and Max Cosby this past year. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, we're always looking, as I, as I like to say, I'm in the talent acquisition business, John. I'm always looking for the best people everywhere, whether it's the center judge, the referee who wears the white hat, the back judge. And so we, we do a very extensive uh, review of where everyone is, uh, compare them to others that uh, we've been training and getting them ready to go, and then if we have a slot available for them, we'll, we'll give them, we'll bring them up, and give them a chance to uh, 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 get on the field for us as Pac-12 officials. Martin, One of the things that we also yeah, did this year, just so you know, the uh, 
especially coming out of COVID, we were finally ready to uh, work together in person more than we were able to, you know, a year, year and a half ago. So I expect us to do very well this year. Merton, before I cut you loose, you got a lot of fans who are anxious about, you know, will there be a Pac-12 conference? What do you say to your friends who say that to you? Oh, I, I think that uh, the commissioner has, 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 has uh, stated rightly that uh, we've got some, quite frankly, some coveted institutions, some coveted markets, uh, um, our institutions that have shown us certainly that they are together, and we're in the midst of uh, media rights negotiations. So my role in this is, as I, as I uh, shared with the commissioner, uh, your role is that, and my role is, is to make sure from a football operations standpoint that things come off as they normally should, nice and smooth, and away we go. So that's how I'm approaching the season, and, and I'm more than certain that we'll, we'll have a great outcome for the Pac-12 moving forward. Yeah, yeah. no divisions, so it'll be one versus two. Is that right, in Vegas? Yes, we wanted our two best teams. It was, it was, it was really odd, John. We were looking, you know, historically, obviously with divisions, you're so used to the division win, winner and assuming that's your best team. When you start looking at the records and, and CFP rankings and so on and so forth, uh, there was a great percentage of the time that you could make an argument that we didn't have our two best teams from a CFP invitation standpoint in our championship game. So we wanted to alleviate that and give those two teams that make it to our football championship every structural opportunity uh, to make the CFP. So we're, we're, we're proud of being the first conference uh, to uh, change the rule on that and, and really being, quite frankly, instrumental in getting the rule changed just for that purpose. Merton, uh, week one, I will be in Atlanta for Oregon, Georgia. I know Utah's got a big game. Do you go on the road or do you do you sit in the control center and watch them all? Uh, both. Uh, I tend to, early on, uh, I tend to either uh, be in the consent man center or I'll be somewhere where I can watch all the games um, just because – things pop up during games that you need to be able to attend to. And sometimes when you go to one game, uh, you may be in between walking somewhere and, and miss an important call or text or something's happened, and you may miss it. So uh, I'll, I'll certainly get out for a number of games, but I, I'm, I'm not at all of them because I really do need to see what's yeah. going on everywhere. Week one, will you be at a con- command center, or are you going somewhere? I haven't made a decision on that one yet. I may pop up at, at a game or I may be in San Francisco. I'll make the call on that for sure. I really appreciate your time, Merton. Thank you for enlightening us and uh, entertaining us. I appreciate you. We'll get you back on at another point. I appreciate you, John. Have a good one now. All right. There's Merton Hanks. He is the Pac-12 Associate Commissioner. He's in charge of football, the actual football. If you're just tuning in, I thought he dropped a little nugget there. Uh, he he mentioned the Pac-12 scheduling-wise trying to get and being committed to getting down uh, to eight conference games in a schedule in a regular season. Uh, there's some obvious reasons you'd do that. Um, you, you don't cannibalize your own conference. He also mentioned that the Pac-12 would need a partner to do that. Think loose partnership and the ACC. They're the only conference that could make that come true. I think Merton Hanks knows something that we don't. I want you to leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I think it was a really interesting interview with Merton Hanks. 
the head of football for the Pac-12 Conference. Let's get let's uh, drill down a little bit on this, if we can, in this segment. By the way, if you're just tuning in, uh, Merton Hanks joined us. Uh, I wrote today, this morning at johnconzano.com, about Dan Lanning. Little Daniel Lanning, Oregon Ducks football coach. I talked to his father, Don. I talked to his mother, Janice, uh, for a long stretch earlier this week. They're in rural Missouri. And I got to tell you, if you want an entertaining read, if you are interested in knowing who Dan Lanning is and whether or not this guy is going to win at Oregon, give it a read at johnconzano.com. And, oh, stick around in about 10 minutes. Don Lanning, Dan's dad, will be joining us on the show, probably from his front porch, maybe sipping tea or lemonade. I mean, literally, a Ford F-150 pickup truck and a ranch and... Uh, it, really a really fun story to write. It was a fun column to write. They're not all fun to write. I've been sick of writing about realignment and the Pac-12 and what are they going to do and all the speculation out there. And, you know, the sources I'm talking with are saying, hey, man, that's, that's all just noise. It's speculation. And, you know, you know, conference feels like it's galvanized. I needed a break from it, and I got it in rural Missouri. The photos alone are worth your time. Go to johnconzano.com. If you want to subscribe, get a free subscription, get a paid subscription, whatever works for you, it'll get delivered to your email inbox every morning, uh, tidy and wrapped in a bow. But Don Landing coming up top of the hour. All right, let's talk about what Merton Hanks said. First of all, guys, I think he let it slip that the Pac-12 is pursuing this partnership with the ACC. It's the only conference that could pull off a crossover game. You go to eight games. We go to eight games. That ninth game will be a crossover game brought to you by ESPN. It feels to me like that's the direction this is going, and I don't think it was accidental. I think Merton Hanks knew he was putting that out there. Yeah, and he talked about just how tough it is to win in the Pac-12 going to feed. It's happened one time since they went to nine games, and that was Oregon uh, back in 2010 when they made the national title game. So I think you're right. He kind of, you know, I don't know if he let it out on purpose or it slipped, but it really sounded like they're uh, they're leaning towards that way because if you get rid of one conference game, you got to have enough value to match it, right? And the only way you're going to do that is the ACC. So I think I think yeah, I think you're right on there with that, John. I also think you know he talked about officiating. And I think important. it's important for this conference to have a decent non-conference record. They were abysmal a year ago. It was historically bad. They have to be better. Or, you know, all that talk out there about how the Pac-12 is dead, it's disintegrating, it's splintering. Uh, it's hard to not acknowledge it as somewhat valid if they're not competitive on the football field. I want you to leave it here. Our big splash coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up top of the hour, you're going to hear from Dan Lanning's dad, Don Lanning, going to join us from rural Missouri. I wrote about him today at johnconzano.com. You can uh, read it if you're interested in it. Um, I felt like by the end of that interview with his parents, I really knew Oregon's coach. The questions that remain, though, will he win? And how will he handle opening night, September 3rd, at Atlanta, Georgia, against the defending national champions? We'll talk about it coming up in the 4 o'clock hour. Let's go to the big splash. It's the one thing you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. 
Well, Chad Holmgren is apparently hurt. He's undergoing tests for a foot injury that he suffered at a Pro-Am game Saturday in Seattle. He's the number two overall pick in the NBA draft. Got the injury in the crossover Pro-Am. Crossover. Pro-Am. While defending LeBron James on a fast break. Don't do that, Rook. Holmgren was a, uh, a, a not one of a number of NBA players who participated in the event. LeBron was there. Jason Tatum was there. Paolo Banchero was there. Aaron Gordon was there. Game was canceled in the second quarter because of the condition of the court. It was an unusually humid day in Seattle. They had a full crowd in the building. Game was being held essentially in a high school gym. Not ideal. And uh, Chet Holmgren, seven foot one, 195 pounds, um, apparently in trouble, and the Oklahoma City Thunder have to be concerned as uh, it looks like it could be a ligament injury to his foot. Blazer fans, you're nodding your heads. You're going, we've been through this. Uh, I, I, I hate to see players injured. I hate to see players injured unnecessarily, especially. Um, and I, I get it, man. Chet Holmgren was out on the court, and uh, I hope he can recover from this, and I hope, hope Oklahoma City fans uh, aren't... Uh, aren't angry at him for this. Uh, I guess it's an understandable injury, but man, I wonder how much or how difficult it's going to get, be to get these pro-am events, uh, get people to attend them moving forward, because I think a lot of NBA teams are not going to want to do that. That's our big splash. Coming up, I can't wait for you to hear this interview. Don, Don Lanning is Dan Lanning's father. They call him Daniel on the farm. He grew up on 6.54 acres in rural Missouri. And, you know, it was a joy to talk to Dan Lanning's parents earlier this week. If you haven't seen the photographs, during the commercial break, go to johnconzano.com. You can see little Daniel Lanning's fourth-grade picture and his football picture and him in the backyard with his brother, one of his brothers, pretending to fly an airplane. Uh, real joy to talk to Mom and Dad. I want you to hear some of the stories in their words. Who is this guy, Oregon's coach? What makes him different? He's been through some stuff as a kid, and I think he's an interesting story. Don Lanning is coming up. We'll have some fun with it, and uh, you get to know Oregon's coach a little bit after this commercial break. So leave it right here. Tell your friends to get here. you got the BFT statewide. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. I made a vow earlier this week that I would get back to writing about people and players and the games and divert for just a moment from all the conversation about expansion and the fate of the conference and all this nonsense. I needed this as much as you did. But I wrote yesterday, and I wrote into the wee hours of this morning. I probably slept three hours last night because I was into writing this piece about Daniel Lanning. If you haven't read it, take a look at johnconzano.com. I'm not going to read it to you on air. But his father, Don, and his mother, Janice, were just fantastic telling stories about their son. In the rolling hills, in the piles of limestone, rural Missouri... Joining us now, Don Lanning, father of Daniel Lanning. How are you, sir? I'm good, thank you, John. How are you? I'm doing well. Give me an idea, because 
you and I have a long conversation, and Janice participates in the conversation. I ask a lot of questions that, you know, uh, I, I'm curious about, and then you get the experience of actually reading it afterwards. What is that experience like for you? Oh man, uh, the uh, the thing came in this morning when I was out uh, uh, on another at another obligation. I couldn't read it right away, but I knew it was there. And, uh, oh, I tell you, I was chomping a bit to, to get to see what you had written there. And, uh, and I finally got a chance I could. I just pulled into a parking lot and read it off my phone. And I got to tell you, it was uh, very touching. Uh, and uh, 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 my, my other, Daniel's brother, David, uh, and I talked about it a little briefly after that. But it was, uh, it was very touching. A dad's... Uh, pride if that's the right word his satisfaction with seeing his his sons achieve is pretty amazing yeah i've got three daughters and we're you know we're just getting started with that is there you know the youngest is still pretty young but let's go back to daniel lanning little daniel as a kid like did you did you think football coach when he was a kid or what were you thinking career-wise oh i'll tell you don for a long time the possibilities seemed pretty limitless uh daniel was uh uh, so he's the kind of person he still is to this day who's so focused on what has his attention and his, uh, his interest at a, at a particular time. You could see him going any direction when he was, when he was a kid, his passions were, uh, varied and, uh, all the way from being, he was, he was quite, uh, adept for his age at, at, at drawing and artistry and painting and stuff like that. Uh, and for a while, we thought, you know, we got an artist on our hand here, maybe. <laughs> uh, uh, it was uh, that was just it, just whatever, whatever, whatever really got him at the time. But the one consistent thing ever since a little boy has always been sports. I love that. We are talking to Don Lanning, yeah. father of Dan Lanning, the Oregon football coach. Uh, give us an idea. You know, you and your wife, both school teachers. Uh, you know. Four decades uh, as a, a teacher, you know, you mainly in science and middle school science, your wife, English and liberal arts and writing and reading. And, you know, you've you've been around a lot of kids, not just your own over yeah. the years. How did how right. did, how, what, what's life like when you have two teachers as parents and you got kids in the household? And, you know, you, you know, you, if, I always thought I got a break from school and I I wondered what's it like to be a teacher who's got kids? Well, uh, I don't know the from the parenting uh, part of it. I don't know it's any different than any other occupation. Uh, you know, uh, we when when Dan when Daniel was a young kid, uh, uh, even well, even all the way through high school, uh, Janice and I taught in a different community than we live in than the boys went to school in. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of crossing uh, that way. Uh, when uh, she and I both uh, moved down to teach in the community where we live, uh, Daniel was already out of high school. But the other kids, uh, then then we had, <laughs> then we really it's a small town, and so then we really had some connections. <laughs> then we they couldn't they couldn't move that we didn't know about it. the The funny part about it was uh, when Daniel, by the time he got to high school, he and his brother both were like this. Uh, I didn't grow up in Richmond. Uh, we moved here when, uh, when you wrote about in your story there, but we moved here when Daniel was three years old. Uh, so our boys essentially did grow up here in Richmond. Uh, but uh, by the time they got to high school, uh, all around town, I became known as, oh, yeah, you're, 
you're David's dad, right? Or you're Daniel's dad, right? I didn't have my own identity for a few years there. I was known as just whoever whoever was the one that was out there right now. I, know, I was known as his dad. Yeah, Jordan's dad, whatever. <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know, you guys men- you mentioned the move. I wrote about it a little bit. But, you know, the decision to move from the city, essentially, to the farm. Your in-laws had 300-plus acres in you know, you and your wife, I thought it was really interesting. You, you made a promise to the Lord. You made a promise to your kids. Can you can you maybe speak to that a little bit? Well, yes, I can. We uh, have uh, committed raising our kids uh, in a godly way ever since they, since they were born. I mean, that's always been our, our goal and our objective is to be godly parents and raise them to be godly men and women. And uh, they're not perfect, and neither are we, but uh, <clears throat> but they know the Lord. And uh, and we do too. And our commitment that uh, when the kids were little was to uh, uh, give them a stable home and a stable school environment. Uh, there's one thing that you talked about earlier about the idea of parents of teachers, and uh, one thing that we had both seen many times in our career is that it's, it, it can be really traumatic sometimes for kids to have to uh, change schools. And uh, and sometimes that's not avoidable, and 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 a good a good parent uh, will be able to deal with that, uh, but it's just hard. And uh, so we made a commitment, and we 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 made a vow to the Lord and to our boys, even though they didn't understand it, that we would make sure that they had the stable home with their mother and me, and that they would have a stable school environment by not being moved. Once they started kindergarten, they're going to be in the same schools until they graduate high school. I think it's fantastic. That was was our pledge to the kids and and to ourselves, too. Give me an idea, you know, because as I spoke to you, you know, I wrote about this as well, but I think you can expand on it a little more. You know, you guys didn't get to a lot of Kansas City Chiefs games, but Dan was a rabid Chiefs fan. What was that like to take he and his brother to an NFL game back in the day? Well, Oh, gosh, it's exciting. And I tell you what, John, it's pretty exciting for me, too, because I didn't go to very many of them either. And, and they were they were my heroes from my boyhood times, too. But uh, but uh, it was it was very exciting. The, the, the kids, my, both of the boys that got to go with us uh, I mean, that day were, uh, it, it was just like they'd been down Main Street and Disneyland plus, uh, you know, seeing the Grand Canyon plus every other big high exciting thing you can do and see all happening that day out there at that stadium and in that parking lot and so forth they really they really were uh, uh, it was the ultimate at that time for them of just just a, a great experience uh they loved uh, the what was going on in the parking lot the tailgating and, and the scene and all that stuff and then and then seeing their their heroes inside the stadium and seeing them up pretty close too was pretty exciting for them yeah, I looked up the box score from the game. Marcus Allen played in that game, and Brett Favre was in that game. Yeah. There were 79,281 fans in the stadium. That must have felt like that's more people that you know were that lived in your county at the time. That would be about three times the population of our county. <laughs> so yeah, there's approximately 25,000 people in Ray County. So, they, yeah, you're right. That would, that would have been the most people that they'd ever seen in one place at one time for sure. Did they get close to the players that day? We, uh, we were able to, uh, when the, when we got in the state before before game time, players were going through their warm-ups and so forth. Uh, the seats that we had were in the lower bowl of the stadium, so 
the boys asked me if there was anything. It was okay for them to go down closer. So we walked down the aisle and just stood at the edge of the rail there by the field for you know a little while while the kids while the guys were warming up and so forth. Uh, and uh, you mentioned Marcus Allen. Marcus Allen walked right in front of the kids. And they were just like their 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 jaws were just hanging slack. They got to see Marcus Allen that close. <laughs> it was pretty exciting. I love that. We are visiting with Dan Lanning's father. It's Don Lanning who's joining us from Missouri today uh, on this radio program. Uh, your kid is, uh, you know, he's moved around. What has it been like for you and your wife to kind of watch him make the progression from playing at William Jewell to? being a graduate assistant and coaching on that Alabama staff and Memphis and Sam Houston State. And, uh, you know, I, I, I gather he didn't unpack his suitcase very often. Well, I'll tell you what, as far as what it was like, John, and what it still is like, uh, is that uh, uh, we have recognized uh, through most of his life that he had the potential to be successful in whatever he focused on whatever his passion was. And when he uh, decided he wanted to be a, a, in, in football coaching, uh, there was never any doubt in his mother and my minds that uh, that he would achieve a pretty, pretty on high level. Uh, now, i got to tell you, uh, it come pretty fast. <laughs> and and I, I, I don't know that I expected it to come quite so quickly, but, but I knew he would be successful at, at it. And, uh, and he had to start at the ground and work his way up and, and he's done that and and uh he will continue to do that he i i expect him to be wildly successful going forward too at oregon and and uh we're going to see some really great stuff there i'm sure yeah and, and you know you've mentioned that you and your wife are public school teachers you know and i want i you know i come from a family of teachers and i know we have a lot of teachers who listen to the show and i want to give a shout out to all the teachers who are out there investing in kids in the in the community and building pe building young people man it's it's the the greatest commodity and the greatest asset that any any community has is is the young people uh often teachers are not compensated i i think in a way that that the rest of us think is uh they should be compensated you're watching football coaches nick saban got 94 million dollars yesterday dan lanning's on a six-year deal almost 30 million dollars is does that make your head spin a little bit Oh, uh, you know, that's not something I think about very much, to tell you the truth. Uh, you know, we've, Janice and I, uh, as you said, as public school teachers, uh, we, we never, we didn't get into that for money and we didn't make a ton of money, but, but the Lord always provided for us with, with what we needed. And we, we've been able to raise our kids and live in a comfortable lifestyle and do some other good things in this world too. So we're, I just don't even think very much about that. I really don't. Yeah, and I and I think it was interesting too because I, I don't think your kid does either. Like I don't think he is motivated by money. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I would agree with you completely. He is not is not his primary motivation. He he like you and I understands uh, perfectly well that he has to provide for a family, but uh, and, and so there's some need for income there. But as far as as far as uh, being motivated by getting every you know, scraping and running after every buck that's out there. That's not him at all. We're talking to Don Lanning, who is in Missouri. It's father of Oregon Ducks football coach Dan Lanning. Don, it's 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 going to be, I think, a surreal experience to see your kid as a head coach. That's your kid out there. In the same way that, you know, when he had that role in the senior class play and he was playing the doctor in Little Shop of Horrors and, you know, he was singing and part of a musical, it must have had that same feeling. Hey, that's my kid out there. 
Uh, oh, very much so. I'll tell you, uh, when he started uh, coaching uh, at Pittsburgh as a GA, uh, we learned, I had to learn to uh, relearn how to watch football games on television because, uh, you know, you get in the habit of watching the plays and then you can kind of relax during the interval between the plays. But we found out real quickly that that's, if he's ever going to show up on account on the, on the television screen as the, as an assistant coach or as a GA, it's going to be when they're doing a sideline shot during plays. So we learned that we had to really concentrate and focus on between the plays. And if we were going to take a little break, it had to be when the play was going on. So completely reversed the way, the way we watch the game on television. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It was, it was, uh, it's, it's been quite an experience to see him, uh, go where he's gone and what he's done. And, and also as part of that, his mother and I have been places, literally been physically been to places and things that we never would have dreamed we would ever go to. You know, I've been to two national championship games and I, I, I can't imagine I would ever have done that otherwise. Um, my first, the first time I was ever at a, uh, power five uh, conference football game was when uh, I went with him to Mizzou when he was in high school and Mizzou invited high school kids down that they were thinking about recruiting, you know, uh, it's, it's been, it's just been quite the experience been to a lot of cool places. And, and in May we got to see the facility there at Oregon and got to see the stadium and uh, so forth. Very, very excited to go out there now and see it full of people and see a game going on out there. Yeah, what you think of the facilities? Because you probably had visited Georgia, maybe Alabama, and some other places uh, that he worked. How did the Oregon facilities stack up? Well, to my eye, uh, which is you know not not a real a highly polished eye at that, but to my eye, they stacked up just fine. I think Oregon's facilities are are quite are quite excellent. As a matter of fact, uh, I uh, now now the physical size of the stadium. Uh, doesn't quite match up with uh, uh, Alabama and Georgia, where they're putting a hundred thousand people in there, you know. But uh, but the, but the layout of it and the uh, uh, just the quality that I could see the facility was just uh, just really excellent. And and I can't wait to to see it full and see a game. Give us an idea, you know. Before I cut you loose, you know, coaches are going to deal with adversity. You know, nothing is perfect. We know that uh, there's going to be adversity in this season. You've been around your kid. Uh, what gives you confidence that, that Daniel Lanning can, can deal with some adversity? What gives me confidence is, is having seen him deal with it in the past and know that his response always is get up off the ground, figure out what went wrong, fix it, and do it again. Uh, I know that he will... Uh, he will power through stuff like that. Uh, you know, uh, I, I expect him to be tremendously successful, but you're right. There will be, inevitably, there will be disappointments at some point in time. Uh, but I know he will He will handle those in a just a great way because he always has. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you, you've done a fantastic job parenting. I said this in the piece, and, I, and I'll say it again. And it's not just with, with Dan. It's, you know, you've got other kids in the family. The entire family unit has to be incredibly proud of where he is. And I, I thought it was really interesting when I talked to you about the other kids like David and Jordan. Uh, you know, you said, hey, look, all of our kids have been successful. And I think, you know, there's there's a parenting book out there for parents who have raised kids who are high-profile kids who have been successful. And 
Maybe there's some young parent listening to this now, Don. What advice do you give to somebody who's got a newborn baby in their lap? Uh, what advice do I give a parent with a newborn baby? Uh, first of all, I guess I would say uh, uh, pray and, and, and give give that baby's uh, future to the Lord and, and, and love them like crazy and always support them, always pick them up when they're down. Uh, you know, um, I'm not saying that I'm perfect at this, but, uh, but between Daniel's mother and me, uh, I doubt that we ever missed one or the other of us was at every single event that any of our kids were in. And, and that was pretty exhausting sometimes, especially when you got three or four of them in advance all at the same time in different places. But, uh, we never missed anything when they were kids and they always knew that mom and dad were going to be there physically as well as uh, for emotional support. And, uh, you know, you do the very best you can with that. Don Lanning, I appreciate your time. Thank you for letting us get to know your kid and your family a little bit, and I will catch you down the road. I know you're coming out to Oregon to see some games, and I will track you down and say hello. But thank you so much for uh, for sharing with us. Well, thanks, Don. We'd love to meet you when we get out there, and, uh, and I'm really looking forward to it. There he is, Don Lanning. He is the father of Oregon football coach. I want to call him Daniel now because his parents call him Daniel. And, I, and it's funny, on Media Day, I asked, I asked Dan Lanning, what would your mother say about Dan Lanning? And he stopped me and he said, first of all, she would call me Daniel. Uh, I, I just love that interview. Steven, what jumped out at you? I love this. Well, I, I, again, I think that's the funny part, too, is that he calls him Daniel the whole time because, you know, me being the Steven <laughs> – you know, sometimes my friends or people call me Steve, but my parents always call me Steven. So I understand, like, where he's where coming from on that. So I found that really funny, um, and I related a lot to, to those moments. Just the, the cadence of his talk, too. Like, I got him on a porch sipping lemonade or tea. He's, I don't know. I don't know if he is or not. I know he's on six and a half acres or so in rural Missouri. And, you know, it's a family farm that has been in the family for many, many years. If you want the whole story about it, you can read it at johnconzano.com. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I got an etiquette question for you guys. All right, let's kick this around a little bit. Yesterday was uh, Washington State football coach Jake Dickert's birthday. All right, I'm I'm not in the business of wishing football coaches in the conference happy birthday. Some people do it. Some people tweet at him, "Happy birthday!" Whatever. I noticed Jake Dickert today is still on social media fielding birthday wishes, and I I got in trouble for this on this show. A few weeks ago, maybe about six, seven weeks ago, uh, Peter Courtney, the longtime president of the Oregon Senate, came on the show, and I said to him, hey, you had a birthday like a week ago. And I said, happy birthday. And he kind of grilled me, I think appropriately and justifiably so. He grilled me, and he said, you can't wish somebody a happy birthday a week late, that you're just reminding them that you forgot their birthday. It wasn't important to you, whatever. He grilled me. I mean, and he was right. I shouldn't have done it. I should have just said, oh, to myself, oh, he had a birthday recently. I missed it. I should have just moved on. Is it poor form to wish somebody a belated birthday 
because given that we have cell phones and everything, aren't you just acknowledging that, hey, I didn't think about it yesterday? Yeah, I think you you need to. If, if it's not the day of, I mean, maybe the day after, but after that, two days, no way. If, it, if it's a day after, you can say, oh, you know, maybe I was out of town or just make up some, some excuse. But after that, no, I, two days, that's too much. I, 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 I'm gonna disagree. Go ahead. I'm gonna disagree ahead, here. I think uh, okay. I think telling someone happy birthday, happy late birthday at any time is better than never telling them anything. I mm. think it shows that you care. And hey, I missed this. I was busy on this day. Or hey, you know, like Facebook didn't let me know it was your birthday. Snapchat, whatever, because that's how I know how it, when it's people's birthdays. And that's how you uh, that's how you can acknowledge it late. I think it's better to acknowledge it late than never acknowledge it at all. I I don't know, man. I'll, I'll put it out to the room. You can tweet at us. Tell us, is it poor form to wish somebody a belated happy birthday? I think because you have a phone, I think the game has changed. Because it used to be you could stick something in the mail a day late, whatnot. And you, they even make cards. Like Hallmark makes a card that says happy late birthday or belated birthday or oh, I forgot or whatnot. Um, I remember just the other day, Anna had a birthday the other day. Her dad lives in Taiwan. Okay, There's a time difference in Taiwan. So maybe he gets a pass. It's like a different day half the time when she calls him. But she picked up the phone on her birthday and called her dad. And her dad didn't immediately wish her a happy birthday. And she said, hey, it's my birthday. And he said, oh, hey, happy birthday. And I kind of give him a pass because it was a day. It was a different day. Like, you know, probably wasn't on his mind. And, oh, by the way, he's just happy to hear from his daughter or whatnot. But... I also think, like, you know, there are some there are worse things to say than "Hey, I missed your birthday. Happy birthday! I know you had a birthday the other day." There are worse things to say. Like the worst thing I think the worst thing you can say to anybody is "You look tired." I hate that. I hate when people say "You look tired." I I know I look tired. Like if I'm tired, but I and sometimes I feel great and I'm not tired. And people say, "Hey, you look a little tired." That's the worst thing you can say to somebody. You're basically saying, "Hey, you look like crap." So don't tell me I look tired. Tell me how good I look. Hey, you look rested. Try that on somebody tonight. Try that on your significant other. Next time you see your significant other, oh, you look rested. What you're saying is you look great. So do that. Yeah. That would be a, that would be a compliment. Well, the bad part, like you said, is when you're not tired, and then they say, yeah, you're t- you look tired. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> my wife says I kind of look tired all the time. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but I am tired all the time. Do you do you uh, do you look better than you feel, or feel better than you look? Mm, I would say. Uh, I probably feel better than I look. <laughs> With this beard I'm growing out, I look better than I feel. I, think. <laughs> I love I love that because I think it's kind of that's kind of an important thing. Like I would rather feel better than I look because I think the feeling is it's for you. It's internal. And the external stuff, that's for everybody else. Well, so yeah, it's the confidence I, thing, yeah. right? It's all yeah. about confidence. I would love to routinely walk by a mirror and just go like, holy hell, what happened to me? Like, I feel great, but that's what I look like. Like, that's that would be I think that would be better than than you going by a mirror and going, oh, I look great. But man, I feel like crap. Why all the time? Like, so I think uh, I would take feeling better than I look. Uh, But and also, I think it's it's a weird thing to wish a stranger grown man to grown man interaction. I think it's a weird thing to wish another grown man happy birthday on social media if you don't know him. I uh, I tend to agree. I'm not a big happy birthday guy. I don't send out a lot of happy birthday texts to people. I only do when my wife texts me. Like today, it was my brother-in-law's birthday. She texted me and said, hey, it's Ryan's birthday. So I texted him happy birthday. 
Hey, then, happy birthday, Ryan. Yeah, happy birthday, Ryan. And then, uh, you know, like you said, with technology, my phone acknowledged that I typed birthday and says, do you want to update your calendar? So I said, yeah. So now I'm going to hopefully remember that it's his birthday next, uh, what, August 24th. But, you know, I'm just not a big not a big birthday text guy. If I want to, if I want to wish you happy birthday, I'm gonna see you in person and tell you that. You notice the coaches, as part of their recruiting thing, have scheduled all these birthday posts for their players, and you know, happy birthday to my outside linebacker. It's like daily. Well, you seen this? It, yeah, it's just like me wishing a happy birthday to my friends. It shows that you care, and for those coaches, it's really important that they show their players that they care, especially now with the transfer portal, and you know, the players can be gone in a flash. And so, I do think that birthdays are a really good way of, you know, like Stephen, it's your if if it's your birthday, like I'm gonna text happy birthday Stephen, and then Stephen knows, like, oh, you know, Sean cares about me. That's really nice of him. I think it's the mo- I think it's also the same for football coaches and their players. But when it comes to coaches, though, see, I would argue that since they're setting out so many that they don't mean as much, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the scarcity has gone away. Like, yeah, if you sent out one one tweet that said, hey, happy birthday to my quarterback, and that was it, that would feel special. But when you're sending out, you know, 55 tweets a year about it, then it's not as special. I can vouch for that. I did that once with Anna as an experiment because Mario Cristobal was wishing everybody happy birthday. I programmed my phone. I created an automation on my iPhone. And I didn't know I could do this, but I learned it on TikTok. I created an automation that would send for every day of the week at a certain time a note of encouragement to Anna, okay? And she loved it for about four days. And then she figured out that I had automated it because I happened to be standing by her, and I wasn't on my phone, and she got a text from me that said, hey, just wanted you to know how much I appreciate you and whatnot. And she went, is that automated? And I was like, no. No, it's not automated. She's like, you didn't just text me. And I was like, damn, I just got caught like Mario Cristobal would get caught. And and hey, Willie Taggart, I think, was was guilty, more guilty of it than anybody. Of course he not. had a social media person who was tweeting for him. You know, he had a person that was a hired gun that was tweeting. And a lot of the coaches do. But Taggart had a person that was tweeting as if he was Taggart. And if you look at his Twitter timeline... He was like almost a year to the day duplicating the tweets. Whoever was doing and scheduling the tweets for him was scheduling these tweets a year ahead and saying, okay, next year on the same day, same tweet. And it was a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, there's a lot. I remember I saw there was a lot of cutting and pasting, it looks like. And then fill, yes. fill in team here, fill in player here. Yes. Uh, but, so I, but here's the thing about your automated texts don't they still count, like, as a man, as a husband? I feel like that should still uh-huh. count of, like, hey, I'm showing uh, showing my wife some compassion and some love. I, I agree. Because you, put, you it, put in the effort. Yeah. You put in the effort to make that automatically come. Like, you're not, you know, you could have done other things with your day. You could have been working. But you know what? You made yeah. your phone automatically text her. I think that's You're sweet. damn right. Yeah. I did one, one for every day of the week. <laughs> At different times, too. It was beautiful. It was, like, off by, like, four minutes, six minutes, an hour, you know. And I thought that'll work. It only worked for about four days. It was the perfect, onto it. perfect scam. Here, here's what I do when I when a good friend has a birthday. I go on YouTube. I look up "Happy Birthday," whatever the name is. "Happy Birthday, Stephen." I find the most ridiculous video, and then I screen record it. It'll be someone singing "Happy Birthday," and it's always super funny. I screen record that video. I trim, I crop it, and then I send it to them with no uh, text at all. And I, you know, it's something that unique that I do. It's a five to ten minute process, and I think it's always good for a laugh. You only do this with your close friends, apparently, because I did not get one of these. When's your birthday, John? So I know mm, for next year. Don't worry about it. Don't yeah. worry about it. I'm, I'm, I'm not that. Video. I'm not. I'm not out fishing for happy birthday wishes. 
All right, coming up. I, I will not give you one, so just going to tell you that right now. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Coming up, uh, Punch It Audio, we got great sound, including what a uh, executive in the TV world says about ESPN and the Pac-12 conference. It's really interesting. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up. 6 o'clock right here. If you're listening in Portland on 750 The Game, appreciate everybody listening across the state of Oregon today. We uh, we are going to play some Punch It Audio in this segment. Uh, having a lot of fun on today's show. Uh, too much fun as it speaks. I love the interviews today. Merton Hanks I thought was really good, interesting, different. I grew up watching Merton Hanks, 49ers fan. Uh, chicken dance, all that. Uh, so it was, it's uh, always good to hear from him and, and see him and hear stories from Merton Hanks. Um, I don't know if I believe 100% that the officiating is going to be better in the Pac-12 conference. Um, they're insisting that they've been working on it. But here's my thing. Show me the baby. Like, don't talk to me about the labor pains. Don't tell me how good the officiating is going to be. Show me the baby. I want to see football games that don't end with all of us going, oh, no, they blew that call, Pac-12 officials. I want to see that this season. But I thought Merton Hanks was really good. He also let a little tidbit drop in the interview where he talked about the Pac-12 trying to get to eight conference games. I think he tips his hand there. How does he tip his hand? Well, here's how. If you're going to go to eight conference games, it means you have to pick up another non-conference game without losing media rights value, meaning the opponent that you add has to be a TV game that your TV partner is interested in. And I think it's interesting that they are currently negotiating with ESPN, and I think it's really equally interesting that the only Power 5 conference that they could line up with in that way is the ACC, which is uh, in partnership already with ESPN. So that loose partnership between... The ACC and the Pac-12, I think it's on the table. I think it's real. And I think Merton Hanks kind of tipped us off in that interview. Um, also on today's show, we talked to Don Lanning, father of Dan Lanning. It was folksy. It was down home. It was great. I loved talking with him. Uh, really enjoyed that interview with Dan Lanning's dad. Grab a podcast if you missed it. Uh, it's going to be difficult. I don't care who your team is. I don't care if you're a Washington fan or an Oregon State fan or an Oregon fan. You're going to want Dan Lanning to be successful after hearing from his dad. Let's play some punch and audio. We have great sound, including ESPN executive Burke Mangus, who's talking about uh, the Pac-12 conference and the importance of college football in the ESPN world. All of that in punch and audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with Oregon State. Brian Lindgren, he's pumped about the offense. Beaver Nation, are they gonna, are they gonna run the football this year? I think they are. Is Chance Nolan gonna be quarterback? I think he is. Here's Brian Lindgren, punch it. Yeah, I'm. I'm fired up about the group. I really am. I, I just think we've got a lot of guys on offense that have played a lot of football and have been in our system for, you know, multiple years. Um, and anytime you have that, I just, I just, it's it's fun to game plan for those guys. And I just, I think we have a lot of uh, unique talent. You know, different guys, different skill sets. 
that I think as an offensive staff, it's going to be pretty fun to design plays and and, uh, and and scheme as we get into you know kind of a weekly opponent. You got a freshman running back in Damian Martinez who looks to be pretty good, physical back, looks to be the Jamar Jefferson of the 2022 season. Chance Nolan's back. He should have a better year than he did a year ago. I was watching some film on Nolan in the last week. And one of the things that I think he really could improve on is he made some bad turnover moves. What's the difference between a good turnover and a bad turnover? Well, there is situationally a difference. He had some bad ones last season. He had a bad one in the Washington game. He had a bad one late in the season against Cal. He had a bad one at Colorado. Like, I I think in the games that Oregon State won, no surprise, Chance Nolan played better. And, but also no surprise... In the games that they won, he didn't create bad turnovers. That's an area of his game I think he can improve on. Yeah, John, go ahead. Oh, I got a question for you real quick. I want to get your take on this. Did you see that Tristan Jebbia was voted as a captain? Yeah. Do you, does that play into maybe who could be quarterback or if Chance Nolan has a shorter leash this year? I think that's Jonathan Smith acknowledging that sometimes maybe the, the leader on your team doesn't necessarily have to be the starter. And... He may be throwing a little smokescreen at Boise State as well by naming him a captain early. I saw it, too, and I kind of went, is that gamesmanship? What's Jonathan Smith doing? So I'm not reading too much into it. I saw Jebbia this summer. I think, you know, a lot of people rooting for him, but I think Chance Nolan's going to be the starter in week one at least. Justin Flo, Oregon linebacker, says he's at 100% ahead of the season. What does he mean by that? Here's Flo, punch it. It feels so good to be back with my team and to be practicing every day. It's to be able to bring my energy and help my team just get better every day. And it helps me get better because, you know, I get to be around my guys. I've been feeling 100% from the start. I've just been taking the rehab like a pro, and it's been helping me in the long run. So, you know, every day I've been feeling 100, and I feel good to go. He's feeling 100. Does he look better than he feels? Does he feel better than he looks? I don't know. He's 6'3", 220. He's one of the best high school recruits from the state of California on the defensive side of the ball in his recruiting class, and he just hasn't stayed healthy. He's had some bad injuries. He's had some unfortunate things, but this is a five-star linebacker that, you know, I talked to Mario Cristobal, I think it was Sunday, last Sunday, and Justin Flo was a guy Mario Cristobal brought up to me. He said, you know, we're going to see Noah Sewell and Justin Flo healthy and on the field this year. Big asset for Dan Lanning's defense if Justin Flo can stay healthy. PGA Commissioner Jay Monahan making some changes. They have announced some new events. The LIV Golf Tour forcing the PGA to get with it. Here's Monahan. Punch it. In addition to the elevated events we announced in June, we're planning to elevate another four events within the 2023 FedEx Cup regular season. We will identify these tournaments in the near future and they will feature an average purse of $20 million. The second item, well, to me, it's the headline, and I've already alluded to it. Our top players are making a commitment to play in all 12 elevated events, as well as the Players' Championship, the Masters Tournament, the PGA Championship, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship. They will also add at least three additional PGA Tour events to their schedules. A lot of changes, including $5,000 if you miss the cut, a travel stipend, some elevated events he mentioned. 
I would like to see the PGA play some events in the Pacific Northwest. How about that, Jay Monahan? But he was also asked as part of this news conference, would the LIV players be welcome back? He said, no, they sued us. They're not coming back. I think it's really interesting. Rory McIlroy says he can't wait for it. What does he mean? Punch it. been working on this for, for two years. Um, and I think when, you know, someone comes to you and says, you know, I, I, I've got something to show you. I think it'll be really cool. It'll enhance the fan experience. It'll be additive and complimentary to the PGA Tour season. Oh, and by the way, Tiger Woods is involved. Um, it's like, yeah, I think that'll be pretty cool. So um, I think it's a great opportunity for, for PGA Tour players to show a different side of themselves. Um, prime time on Monday night. Um, I think it's great for, you know, yeah, brand exposure to, to try to um, engage a different audience. Um, you know, we've all heard about the fact of, of, of how old sort of the golf audience is, trying to trying to get younger eyeballs onto it. Um, and I just think it's going to be a really a really cool concept. I think 100% this was brought upon by the LIV golf event and forcing some disruption in the PGA world. This could be a good byproduct. I think uh, naturally the PGA Tour wants to stay relevant. It also wants to protect its sponsors. Pete Carroll, Seahawks coach. He says Gino's in the lead when it comes to his quarterback position. But is it decided? You know, if you are a Seahawks fan, ride or die with Gino Smith? Here's Pete Carroll. Punch it. Gino's been the guy in the lead position the whole time, and I've protected that thought with, uh, you know, throughout. And, and he's done a really nice job. He's been very consistent. Um, so we'll just see what happens. And, and, you know, there's two more weeks of practice, too, after this. So there's... Where the timeline, I had a set thought on the, you know, what we would do with the timeline, but that got disrupted, and so um, we're, you know, we're going to use all the time we need. Geno Smith holds the edge on Drew Locke. Both quarterbacks were battling in trading camp to replace Russell Wilson, who was traded to the Broncos. Smith got the lead early, got the lion's share of the first team snaps, and frankly, you know, other than a team scrimmage last week, Geno Smith has been more consistent, but Locke outplayed him in the scrimmage so a lot of people wondering what's going to happen has he won the job no not officially feels like he's inching towards it though uh you know he will start the preseason finale against the dallas cowboys on friday finally let's go to espn espn executive burke mangus gave an interview where he talked about espn's role in the college football landscape i'm going to play two clips here clip number one the ESPN executive talking here says he believes in 2024 that ESPN will have more viewers watching ESPN even though it doesn't have the Big Ten. What does he mean? Punch it. Right now we have by far and away the biggest share of audience in college football. Like all, over 50% of total viewership in the sales demo, 18 to 49, comes through the Disney networks. Um, we will take a dip in that number in 2023 because the sec deal that we bought the sec rights that we bought which was the cbs package has haven't started yet and the big 10 will be gone after this year so we'll take a one-year dip in our share but actually coming out of that when the sec rights flow in in 2024 and then texas and oklahoma come in 2025 our share of college football viewership will actually grow without the big 10 
um, without the Big Ten would, in the way it was being offered to us, in other words, right? Yeah, it turns out that the Big Ten Conference really wasn't interested in ESPN. Mangus talked about getting offered half the number of games that they currently carry at double the price. Basically, they gave them an offer they had to refuse. Mangus also talked about the Pac-12 adding more teams. Listen carefully here. Punch it. I think the Big 12, you know, in a way, having already brought in, you know, the four schools to replace Texas and Oklahoma, you know, is a little bit more or a little bit further ahead in terms of the membership, you know, uh, construct of it all. Um, I don't think anybody believes the Pac-12 will stay at 10 necessarily, but we don't need to know anything beyond these are the 10, these are the rights, here's a value, and then, you know, there'll be a mechanism to account for for any new members if, if, if that is to happen. So he's basically saying that there will be an escalator clause if they do a deal with the Pac-12 that accounts for potential expansion. Is there going to be a clause that accounts for the possibility of losing a team? I don't know. But I think the reports about the Pac-12 conference's demise have been greatly exaggerated. We'll talk about that coming up in the 5 o'clock hour at length. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Hours coming up, five o'clock hour. A lot of people asking. Uh, Larry on Twitter has a question for us, guys. We were talking about birthdays earlier. Larry wants to know: Is it okay if you have a relative that had a birthday a week ago? Should you wish them a happy birthday if a week or so has passed? I think it kind of depends on how your relationship with your, uh, you know, with your family is. But I think in general, no. I I, I think you just act like you. Just, you know, you just didn't talk about it. So I think you just yeah. play dumb and just don't do it. I think it's a little late. Like I said, I think it's one day and after a day, you know, I think people understand just the one day, like, oh, maybe you forgot that one day, but two days and later, I, I just am not going to do it. I think it's I about actually, yeah. how you frame it. How about instead of saying, hey, happy late birthday from a week ago, how about, hey, how was, how was your birthday? And, and sorry, I didn't, mm. I didn't say it. I was super busy that day. Did you have a good I, birthday week? Yeah. How, how was your, how was your birthday last week? <laughs> Happy that? birthday week. I like that. Happy birthday month. I'm uh, eight days late. <laughs> Happy birthday month, man. Anyone uh, anyone that calls like their birthday week, anyone that like celebrates a birthday week is a uh, a menace to society. <laughs> I we we give 3 days in our family, Sean. 3 days. And but we have a 6-year-old and an 8-year-old. So Yeah. It's a three day. It's They're a three more day important when you're younger. I think we can agree yeah. on that. Yeah, we birthdays. give we give like a weekend. It's like you get the weekend yeah. and then after that for sure. Um, I say no. If a week has passed, you're you're essentially acknowledging that you forgot, which is a signal that says you're not very important to me. So what I would do in that case, if you forgot the birthday, is I I would I would just make a note in your calendar and go early next year, and just and really go. Just this is gonna be a this is gonna be a bad year. I can't nothing I can do about it. Can't get that one back. And you go early next year. Uh, Timmy on Twitter disagrees with me. He says better late than never. If somebody were to wish me a happy birthday a week or a month later, I'd still feel 
blessed. Now, what you could yeah, do is stance. you could go automatic text at 12 a.m. for their next year's birthday. Yeah, be first. Yeah, be the first one next year. Or just go way early. Could you go way early? Oh, I know you got a birthday coming up. I want to be the first person to wish you. I'm like two days early. I know <laughs> your birthday's in. tomorrow, but happy birthday. Happy early birthday. Is it better to say happy early birthday or happy late birthday? Early, definitely. Early. Definitely. Yeah. But see, Jake Tickert, Washington State coach, he had a birthday yesterday. He's now wish saying to everybody, thank you for everybody who gave me the wishes. And then I looked at the replies and people are saying happy birthday. And I'm saying, you essentially are just acknowledging you don't you know, know him well enough to know when his birthday is. So don't do that. Don't do it. You're complicating your lives. The 5 at 5 is coming up. Leave it right here. Happy birthday, everyone. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. All right, here's a worse or a more awkward birthday scenario. We've been talking a little bit about birthday etiquette. My wife and my mother share a birthday. Different years. Let's get that straight. (laughs) Different years, but both of them born on the same day. I am very careful to not give them a joint text or social media post. They need to have their own post. I traditionally give Anna the uh, first post because I'm not married to my mom. And then uh, several minutes later, mom will go. But then something came up because we told my mom, hey, we got you a birthday present. Here's what we got you. We got you a gift certificate to like, you know, they live in California and they have, you know, the, uh, the you know, Clint Eastwood. Everybody knows Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood started this kind of hotel resort thing in the Monterey Carmel area, Mission Ranch. And we said to my mom, look, we got you a gift certificate at the Mission Ranch. And she said, you know, I never used the gift certificate last year from the place that you got got us. And then we went and checked. We called to find out why didn't mom get the gift certificate from last year. It turns out we never called and actually ordered it. So it was a very awkward thing where I was like, hey, mom, guess what? You got two gift certificates now. Apologies. She just texted me during the commercial break, said, I got it in the mail. I have the gift card in hand. And I was like, there you are. Happy birthday, mom. But what do you guys think about the social media post? I'm conflicted because in the role that I am in and you guys, you're on radio, you know, do you feel like it's cheesy to wish your significant other a happy birthday on Instagram or Twitter or whatnot? Because that's kind of a public thing. And shouldn't that be a private message? Uh, Yeah, I'm all about the private messages. Uh, I don't want to. I, you know, my anniversaries with my wife, I don't like to make a post. I know my wife does, and she always puts in the comments, like, uh, or in the message, like, you know, I have to do this. Everyone does it, but I know she loves it. But for me, like, I'm just not going to do it. I'm, you know, if I'm going to shoot you text, it's going to be a private thing for me. Um, and just to that point, like, talk about gifts. You talk about this. It made me think of this because my brother just got married, and I know a lot of times people don't get gifts right away. Like, how long do you have before you can give a gift for a wedding? Because I know... A year. You have a year. Is it one year? Is that the official rule? Yes. You have, that's the etiquette. Okay. I wouldn't wait a year. I, didn't, I would not advise it. <laughs> but but you, have, you have a year. So it's not like you, the birthday thing. Yeah, it's not like no. the birthday thing where you can, you know, we, you have a day. Like, it's a whole year. 
We should have a birthday thing. It should be like you have eight days or something like that. You know, you get, you get a little leeway, a grace period, so to speak. You well, know, it's like, it's like New Year's too. Like, how long can you say Happy New Year to somebody? Or, or how about if a birthday falls on a weekend? You know, especially on a Sunday where you can't get something delivered. You know, should you be allowed like they allow you like on tax day to you know turn in your taxes on Monday? A grace period. Yeah, it should just float to Monday. If, you know, that, we should we should champion that. The birthday floater. <laughs> the, and also, by the way, Stephen, I'm going to help you out here. Yeah. Um, I actually do think that that social media post is you you know it's important to your significant other. Yeah. You know that she likes that on an anniversary. So I should why do not, it. Well, why not do it? I mean, I don't know. It's not my thing. I know, but <laughs> I know it's not for you, man. Oh. It's because I am the same way. I. I don't want. I don't need people to know my birthday. I don't need people to know my anniversary. I don't need people. That, that's to me. It's like, why would you care? Like, you know, if I don't know you, you don't know me. Like, we we shouldn't know that stuff about each other. You know, you shouldn't know what size pants I wear. You shouldn't know what size shoe I wear. Like, there's no need for it. So I, but I realize it's like, you know, Anna's not listening right now, so I'm gonna say this. I, I realize it's important to her. Like, I get it. She likes it, and so I do it. But there is a faction, there's some trolls out there who will message me and go, oh, why are you wishing her a happy birthday? It should be between you guys. And they're kind of right. Yeah. You know? I mean, I guess this year for my anniversary, it'll be 10 years, so I'll definitely got to do something, I guess. Go big, man. At least I'll, I'm going to write it on my phone make sure I don't forget. That's, go, what, that's what I've learned today. Go big, go early, take her to a concert, man. You know? There you no, go. He First do concert. concerts. <laughs> If we've learned one thing about Steven this week, he is true to himself. Like, yes. he's not a concert guy. He's not a social media, you know, wishing a significant other happy birthday. Like, he is, you know, you're pretty uh, stringent on your on your beliefs and your, you know, like what you're into. And I, I totally respect that. I'm 35, but I feel like sometimes I'm like a, you know, 65-year-old man when it comes to social media and stuff like this. Yeah, a little Larry David in you. A little bit. <laughs> I do love Curb, so. A little bit, a little bit. All right, the five at five. It's the five biggest things going on in the world the five at five kind of sort of the five biggest things going on in the world but let's uh let's talk about jury awards federal jury found today that los angeles county must pay kobe bryant's widow vanessa bryant 16 million dollars for emotional distress caused by the deputies and the firefighters sharing the photos of the wreckage of the crash that killed NBA star Kobe Bryant and his daughter. Nine jurors returned a unanimous verdict. They agreed with Vanessa Bryant and her attorneys. They said that the photos of the remains of Kobe and their 13-year-old daughter Gianna invaded their privacy and brought emotional distress. The jury only deliberated for four and a half hours. Vanessa Bryant cried while it was read. I think, you know, I think the ultimate result here... For, for Vanessa Bryant was not about winning money. She doesn't need the $16 million. It was about the principle and the victimization that happened when these deputies and firefighters shared what should have been private investigation photos that were necessary to be taken but should never have been shared, should not have been shared in the way they were shared. And I think this is not a big surprise uh, Vanessa Bryant, unanimous decision, $16 million. Second thing in our 5 at 5, Chet Holmgren, Oklahoma City rookie, big guy, seven foot one, Gonzaga star. 
He averaged 14 points and 8.4 rebounds in five games for the Thunder in Summer League. Well, he's hurt now. He suffered an injury in the Jamal Crawford Pro-Am event in Seattle. He was trying to defend LeBron James on a fast break. I'm trying to think now about all the weird sort of sliding doors things that had to happen for Chet Holmgren to get hurt. He's got a foot issue. They're undergoing an evaluation. Could be a ligament problem. It was a pro-ab game Saturday in Seattle. But first of all, Chet Holmgren has to play in this event. Also, Jamal Crawford has to put the event together. And and you may, if you are an NBA fan, remember the moment where you saw Jamal Crawford's tweet saying, LeBron is in. I kind of wonder, if LeBron doesn't go to play in this event, does Chet Holmgren get hurt? Jason Tatum played. Paolo Banchero played, among others. Uh, this is tough for Oklahoma City. It looks like Holmgren's got an injury. could be significant. And, frankly, it is the number two item on the five biggest things going on. Number three in our five at five. Uh, Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy have launched a primetime virtual golf league. Virtual venues, primetime matches, They're launching a tech-infused golf league in partnership with the PGA Tour. It'll be six three-man teams, 15 regular season matches, a playoff in January. It'll start in 2024. The new league is called the TGL. 18-hole matches that will take just two hours to complete on a virtual course. This will happen on Monday nights in a custom-made venue in a yet-to-be-determined location. I like the secrecy of it. I want to know more. That is number three in our five at five. We turn our attention a little bit to the Pac-12 conference. Burton Hanks joined us earlier in the program. He is a former 49er, a four-time Pro Bowler, and a Super Bowl champion. But more importantly, he is the deputy associate commissioner in the Pac-12 conference. He is the supervisor of football. Burton Hanks came on this show, and this is the number four item in my five big things going on. But Merton Hanks came on the show, and he kind of tipped off the fact that the Pac-12 conference is looking at going to eight conference games in the next cycle. Hanks talked about 2023 or 2024 as being as soon as this can happen. But essentially, the Pac-12 would need a partner. It would need a partner conference that could be lined up to take the place of that ninth conference game. Well, who could that be? Well, only the ACC among Power 5 members has the ability to come in and play a crossover game. I think this is real. I think it's on the table. If you listen to the show, we've been talking about the loose partnership with the ACC and the Pac-12 since late June. I think this is happening. I think ESPN's going to underwrite it. And for those who are predicting gloom and doom, for the Pac-12 conference, yeah, I'm not saying the Pac-12 is going to live forever, but it doesn't feel to me like this conference is dead just yet. Finally, our fifth thing in our five at five, Desmond Howard took a look at the Heisman Trophy board and saw C.J. Stroud on the board. Desmond Howard, former Heisman winner himself, guy with a vote, he says he shouldn't be the favorite. Here's Desmond. Well, first I would like to say that I don't think that Anybody should be the front runner except Bryce Young because he's the, the returning winner 
of the Heismans. I don't think that, you know, C.J. Stroud or, or anybody else should be even neck-to-neck -neck right now with Bryce Young. I think that um, when you look at C.J. Stroud, he's going to have some big games. He, he opened up the season against Notre Dame. So that's a marquee matchup. But just at the beginning, when no games are played, for him to be the favorite, I just don't get it. So I believe that uh, Bryce Young should be the front runner and everybody else should be starting at the finish line at the same point. Um, but, I mean, he's going to have some marquee games, like I said, to, to be able to catch Bryce Young. But I think Bryce Young right now, for me, as a former winner and as a guy who's a voter, is Bryce Young against the field. Look, I have a vote as well, Desmond Howard. I didn't win the trophy, but I do have a vote. And I'm here to say I haven't made my mind up yet. I'm not leaning towards C.J. Stroud at Ohio State, although I get it. A quarterback on a team that could play in the playoff is not a bad bet. Stroud's 2-1, to one, though. I don't love his game. I like his game. Bryce Young is 4-1. to one. He's also a quarterback, if you don't know. Caleb Williams at USC is 7-1. to one. He's third on the board. Then you got running back Travion Henderson, who's uh, essentially 20-1. to one. But here's an interesting bet. It's not an offensive player. I want to throw this one out. How about Alabama linebacker Will Anderson Jr.? Caesar Sportsbook says he's attracted more bets than any player at their sportsbook. He went from 60 to 1 to 22 to 1 in the offseason. At DraftKings, he's also drawn more bets and more money wagered. The problem is only one defensive player has won the trophy. Since uh, 1997, that's Michigan's Charles Woodson. Do they get the votes? I felt like Jadavion Clowney should have won the damn thing. He was the best player in that year. But uh, most of the bets, the larger bets, are on C.J. Stroud, who threw for 44 touchdowns last season. By the way, more than 20% of the money wagered at Caesars is on Stroud, including somebody in April to put $10,000 down on Stroud at 4-1. to one. That is your 5-5. Five to five. Guys, who's the best bet uh, on the board of the people I mentioned? If I, you know, if I threw you a, a $100 bill and I said, all right, go and put it on a player, are you going C.J. Stroud? Are you going Bryce Young? Are you going Caleb Williams? Are you going Will Anderson Jr.? Who, who are you betting on? Bryce Young, I think, should be the favorite. I agree with Desmond Howard. I think plus 200 is too much for anyone. That is that is pretty low odds for a Heisman ahead of the season. But let me throw this out there. I made this take on the polls last night. I, a, a sleeper that I really like this year is Jackson Smith and Jigba, plus 3,300. I have a feeling after watching the Rose Bowl last year against Utah, Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to be one of the best receivers we've seen in recent memory in college mm -hmm. football. He's got C.J. Stroud throwing in the ball, and when he was on the same team as Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave, they all pointed to him and said he is the best receiver in this room. I feel like he's going to have a huge junior year. Yeah, caught like ninety-five balls last year. He was—I mean—he's going to be a star for sure. Can you can you safely bet on a guy who's catching the passes, knowing that the guy throwing the passes uh, is going to get more attention for it? Yeah, that, that's that, the thing. That's the tough part, also. And then with Trayvon Henderson as well, like he was what a freshman last season, and he—I'm uh, looking at the stats right now—he ran for uh, over twelve hundred yards and fifteen touchdowns as a freshman. And there's reports that he wasn't even in good shape last season. So now he's actually talked about how he's in shape this year. So are they going to split votes in Ohio State with Stroud and Marvin Harrison Jr. is going to be a really good receiver and Henderson and then Jigba? Like, that's a tough – that's tough. Like, who's going to get those votes? I also think uh, – look, Caleb Williams is 7-1. to one. I, I got I to gotta address this. Why? 
just because it's USC? Like, I don't get him at 7-1. Like, I don't think, A, I think in order to win the Heisman Trophy, your team has to be good. USC's not a playoff team. They're not getting to the playoff. I know that some people are putting them on their playoff prediction for the year because I think it's a cool thing to do. I think people like it. There's a lot of hype around Lincoln Riley. They're not a playoff team. They're not there yet. So how can you put any USC player in that picture? you you got to get to the playoff or be right on the cusp of the playoff. And then traditionally, it's a quarterback or running back. Like if you just look, you know, your metrics guys, like Dave Bartu, the college football matrix, well, you know, we can bring him on the show and he'll say, look, here, here's the formula to win the Heisman Trophy. Well, just look at the damn winners. It's quarterback, it's a running back. It's somebody whose team is sniffing around the playoff or in the playoff. I don't see Caleb Williams as a playoff contender. Yeah, and then talk about that, you know, Jameer Gibbs at Alabama. You know, he could be a kind of a dark horse guy. We've seen Alabama running backs win the Heisman before, Mark Ingram, Derrick Henry. Uh, you know, and you're mostly right. We talked about Will Anderson just a little bit. You know, and Dominican Sue, he had a real legit chance to win the Heisman Trophy. He probably should have won when he was uh, back at Nebraska. I think there's going to be a contingent, a contingent of people that want to see a defensive player win the Heisman Trophy because he's probably going to be, you know, the first overall draft pick. So you could argue he's the best player in college football. Will Anderson, I think he has a legitimate chance if he has another good season. I mean, 17 sacks a season ago. If he follows it up with the, like this year. He could be a real winner. Is he going to be more of a standout than uh, Manti Teo, Tyron Matthew, and Dominican Sue, Jadavion Clowney? Like, those guys were all yeah. studs, and they were on lesser defenses than Bama, so they stood out even more. It's really hard for a defensive player to win it, I feel like. Yeah, it is hard. And I have uh, I have traditionally tried to lean a little bit towards a Pac-12 candidate, but I, I, think, I feel like if you are voting for a Pac-12 player, and we're being legit about who's going to be around the playoff, are we not talking about, you know, Cam Rising at Utah? Like, if Utah makes the playoff and Cam Rising has the kind of year that he had a year ago, you know, he'll get the votes. Caleb Williams is not going to get the votes. 80-1. Yeah. That's not a bad bet. I mean, I like it's, not it. a hor- it's not an ugly bet at 80-1. to one. But can he put up the numbers, right? Because it's the combination of are you good enough with yeah. the team, but you got to put up numbers well. And I think that's where Caleb Williams – John, and I'm with you with Caleb Williams and USC. I'm a little down on them, but we know he's going to put up numbers that Lincoln Riley offense, right? He's already produced a couple Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks. If Caleb Williams puts up numbers and USC wins 10 games, I mean, he's going to be right there. Yeah, but you look at the line. I mean, aside from Devonta Smith two years ago, it's Bryce Young, it's Joe Burrow, it's Kyler Murray, it's Baker Mayfield, it's Lamar Jackson. Uh, you know, it's Derrick Henry, it's Marcus Mariota, it's Jameis Winston, it's Johnny Manziel, it's RG3, it's Cam Newton. It's a quarterback. It's a quarterback, it's just a running back. So I, I kind of agree. Like, I, I felt like Jadavion Clowney was the best player in college football the year he didn't win it. And I just think there's too many voters who go, I need to see numbers. I need this to be quantified. And by the way, this person who wins, it's got to be on my TV set all the time. And that really comes back to ESPN sort of, you know, cre- crafting the narrative for who's going to win this award. So I don't know how you don't make Bryce Young the favorite on this. Like, you know, he threw for 47 touchdowns last year, and Alabama's going to be damn good. Well, you know that, I mean, some people just have voter fatigue. We see it in the NBA all the time. So I think just because he won last season, people are going to be hesitant to vote him the Heisman Trophy two years in a row. So I think that's why C.J. Stroud has opened up as the betting favorite because, you know, he put up those great numbers last season as well. Yeah, there are some uh, great examples of players who probably were more deserving in their second year and didn't get there. But uh, I, I think you could have, like, Eddie George won it as a senior uh, at Ohio State in 95. I kind of felt like Eddie George could have won it like two or three years in a row. 
and he didn't get it. And it was like that last year was kind of like the uh, Susan Lucci Lifetime Achievement Award. Like they just went, hey, Eddie's been really good the last few years. But but I feel like the voters, and look, I'm one of them, but I feel like the you know my vote is never going to break the tie. I'm a West Coast voter. I'm not going to be the vote that puts somebody over the top. But I feel like the voters have gotten less embarrassing. Like Gino Toretta, Charlie Ward, Danny Werfel. Like we're not doing that anymore. And for for some reason, and so I, you know, I think Kyler Murray, Joe Burrow, Devonta Smith, Bryce Young, like you can live with that as a voter. Yeah, it seems like it's going more towards guys that you can see working out in the NFL as well, right? Like it went back to even you know thinking back to those guys who were solid college players, never in the NFL. Troy Smith, Ohio State, those type of guys. Like I don't think they would get the votes anymore because. You can't picture them being a really good NFL player. With all these players lately, it seems like they go to the NFL and be good. All but- right, so the, let's look at the mocked drafts for 2023. And you see uh, you know, C.J. Stroud at the top of the mock draft, and you see uh, Will Anderson second, and you see Bryce Young third, and you see Jalen Carter at uh, Georgia fourth. And then, uh, then your wide receiver, uh, you start getting wide receivers and such. So... Uh, Noah Sewell is projected to be a top 10 pick by some of the mock drafts. If Oregon's good, can Noah Sewell sneak in there? I mean, is, is that somebody that people would talk about? Would he get votes? Would he be invited to to the Heisman Trump? Probably not, because I think there's a real bias here when you look at the voting base towards players who play on the East Coast and in the South. But I'll tell you this, that whole East Coast bias that is generated, I think, by the propaganda machine that is ESPN. It's the four-letter network. They are a propaganda machine. They are going to promote the SEC because that's their partnership. I wonder when Fox takes over the bulk of the TV contract of the Big Ten, I wonder if we're going to see less hype about the Big Ten players and more about the ACC and whoever ESPN is behind. I'm just throwing that out there because I feel like don't you guys feel like ESPN controls a lot of the narrative when it comes to these kinds of awards? Definitely. And I think because of that, there's one sleeper I have, John, and we don't know how they're going to be this year, but they have a great week one game, and that's Anthony Richardson, the quarterback at Florida. He's 40-1 to right now. If they beat Utah, I think that's the same thing, where the narrative can be pushed that Florida is back with the new coach of Billy Napier. Uh, they just kind of quit on the team last year. They beat the Pac-12 favorite. I think that he would jump up really high into the Heisman. So he... If I had to bet, I think I would throw a little bit of money on uh, Anthony Richardson as well. There you go. Get your Heisman votes in. I, you know, and by the way, get your Heisman wagers in. I got a vote. We'll talk about it throughout the season. I'm not going to get sucked down the rabbit hole of like posting a weekly Heisman. Here's who should win it a thing, but we'll talk about it. And I, I'm not one of these people that's immune. To, like I've talked about it on the show. Like who should I vote for? We've had callers call in, and I, you know, my ballot has changed after callers call in. So. I feel like I have a vote. I feel like we have a vote. That's how I'm putting it. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Having a lot of fun with this radio show. People may not remember the origin of this show. Stephen, were you working for the Blazers when Greg Oden was drafted? When um, were you working? I was not. I was there in 2011. Okay, so you came after that. Uh, who were who was around at that time? What players were you? Uh, 
And by the way, can you tell our audience what you did for the Blazers? Is that is that a state secret, or can you talk about? Oh no, it's, it is not a secret. Uh, so yeah, so I was hired by the Blazers as a video analyst, um, which is basically like so. There's a there's a thing called Synergy now that kind of organizes plays by how they're running everything, and that's what I did. It was before Synergy was really a thing. So I would go in and I would basically break down uh, film of the upcoming opponents based on what play they ran, how they ran it, what direction they were going in. Who was running it? How it was guarded? Uh, you know, if there's any help defense, just any type, any type of uh, thing that happened in a play of basketball, I would have to track it. So, you know, I would watch the play, and then I'd rewind five seconds, rewatch it again, make sure I didn't miss anything, and then of course after that, I'd have to track the rebound as well. So, right, so give me an idea. It, it, it how was that used by players? Uh I mean, I think so they just, I I have a know. So I was like the, just the initial breakdown of it, and then I would pass it yeah. out to my boss, and then they would break it down even more. So I just think that they would watch it just to see how you know tendencies of players, because it was a lot of like directions of where they were going or where on the court uh, they were running, you know, a pick and roll or an isolation or a post up. So I think it helped the players just recognize where on the court, you know, if you know, let's say Lamarcus Aldridge is posting up on the left block, he's going to go this move or you know something like that. I think that would be fascinating for you to take video of pickup players playing in the gym <laughs> and their tendencies. Gonzano only goes right. He never goes left, and he never shoots from these positions on the floor. Like, can you imagine having the advantage of that knowledge? Yeah, I mean, it would be amazing. Like, uh, I mean, when I was in college, I mean, in high school, like, we watched film kind of in high school, but in college we watched film a lot more, and we scouted a lot more, and it really helps. Like, it is an actual thing to watch and scout and – do these type of things, and if players aren't putting in the work, like we laughed at Kyler Murray's uh, deal, they had to have four hours worth of prep time. Like, I mean, it's insane that he, if he really wasn't doing that, because it helps so much, and you can be such a better player if you're actually watching film and learning on the job. Do you think the players do that? Do you think there are obviously maybe there are some that are great students of the game and others not, but I think some of those players probably come into the league and they are so talented, so gifted, have been used to uh, dominating at whatever level they came into that. You know, they probably don't really understand the value of that film work. No, definitely. I that I that doesn't. You know, I think that is a hundred percent true. And you think about it this way: you know, a lot of these guys are so good and so talented. They've been told they're so good and so talented their entire career. So, and they did it in high school. Why not watching film? So why would they change their game now? And they're making millions doing it. So they're not going to change. You know, I've said this before on the show that that was the one thing they told me. The most important thing about judging an NBA player is can they adjust and mm. will they adjust their game and adjust their role? Because a lot of players won't. They're going to play one way and one way only, but you can find that anywhere in the NBA. You need to find a guy that does the dirty work that puts in the extra work. And so I think that's why, you know, you look at a guy like Damian Lillard, who is very talented and very skilled, but he does put in a lot of work and he's improved his game in areas that other players can't. Because remember back in the day, John, there was a debate on who was better, Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum. And, mm. Damian Lillard really learned how to get to the free throw line and get easy buckets. CJ McCollum never did that. And so you look at that and it's like, well, those are the type of things that become, make you an elite player, a Hall of Fame player, top 75 guy of all time, and a guy that, you know, is tradable. Is Lillard an elite player? Because that debate has been sparked. Like Jason Tatum, Damian Lillard, you know, stars, sure. Elite, yeah, we can debate what elite means. But are they superstar players? Do you classify Tatum and Lillard and how about Kyrie Irving? Superstars or just stars? Well, I mean, it's just so arbitrary, right? Like, what exactly, like, what does that mean? Does it mean if they're your best player, can you win a championship? Is that how you would define elite or define a superstar? I mean, I think that they are. 
And I think it's just because of popularity. I would say Kyrie's a superstar, an elite player, because no. because of how popular he is and how skilled he is. He is one of the most skilled players of the NBA. I would say Damian Lillard is obviously an elite player and a superstar player because he is an all-star all the time. He leads the Blazers. It's just, it, it's just I just think it's an arbitrary thing to talk about. So, yeah, I, I would say most of these guys in the NBA that are the all-star level are superstars. Okay, but how many, How like if we're putting tiers together, Yeah. Let, let's say tier one players. Like the Athletic did this thing where they ranked like, you know, the top 125 players in the league. And they, you know, they basically said, okay, here are the tier one players. And, like tier 1A. How many players are in tier 1A with like Steph Curry and Giannis and yeah. Luka? Like who's in that group? I think Jokic, back-to-back MVP, I would say, and I think LeBron. I would say five of them. Maybe KD, but I'm, I would not, put I'm not high on KD right now. I would say there's a five in tier one, and that's KD, Luka, Steph, um, Giannis, and Jokic. You would not put LeBron in that tier 1A Not right anymore. Now. Not nah. anymore. Yeah, I agree. I think... But how about Joel Embiid? Yeah, he's right up there too. He's knocking on the door. Okay, but draw the line. Let, yeah, let's Joel just say Embiid hasn't won. Like Joel Embiid's won like as much as Damian Lillard's won. He hasn't really done anything. So yeah, I'm gonna leave Joel Embiid out here. Okay, so are we gonna say Giannis, uh, Jokic, Luca, Curry, Luca, and Durant? I put Durant in there. Okay, and Durant. That's five players. In the next group, who's in that next group? Embiid, Kawhi Leonard, okay. Dame. Embiid. You're putting Damian Lillard in that next group. I don't I know. If, so. I don't know if I put him in that second group. I, I'm. I think I'm going another group for him. You know, and I apologize to Blazers fans, but I kind of feel like it's hard to because I want to throw out injury and stuff. What do you do with Anthony Davis if he's healthy? Right, and right. it's it's hard for me with Dame because we know what he is defensively, and I think that is a real problem. Like Nikola Jokic. Isn't the best defender, but he's a good positional defender. He doesn't necessarily block shots, but he gets in the right position. Joel Embiid, elite defender. Damian Lillard, we know he's a below average defender at best. And so for me, I think it's hard for me to put him in that second tier, knowing that he's going to yeah. be a liability on the defensive end. I, I almost want to say I'm going to put Lillard in there with... Uh, what what do you do with Jimmy Butler? Like what that, do you do with Jason Tatum? I was just going to bring group? up Jimmy Butler. I'm a big Jimmy Butler guy. Like I think... Jimmy Butler is better than Damian Lillard. Yeah, and wow. I think I am. I agree. Uh, okay, well, yeah, me and you yeah, are on an island. He's I think very in Portland, unsexy Jimmy Butler, but he wins, and he does. we've seen him grit his way to yeah. very far in the playoffs and NBA well, Finals. Two, two out of the last three years, yeah. I think that matters. I think you have to count for that stuff. And look, um, I think Lillard's a great player. And and look again, we're we're trying to split hairs here between superstar and star. I think Lillard is a star. Solid star player, all-star player. But I don't think he's anywhere near that top four or five. He's not in that group. He's, no. Well, let me ask this question. big gap. If Damian Lillard was surrounded by, like, just a perfect team, kind of like what Steph has had, just defenders and all sorts of uh, great role players with him, could he be the number one? Could could he lead his team to a title? No. No. Because that's, I don't think I don't think that is. I don't think the guys in that were around him would see the ball. I think he's got to have the ball in his hands to be who he is. And I think you got a problem when and I think like nobody wants to say it. I think Portland's market is a problem when it comes to attracting free agents. But why why does anybody want to play with Damian Lillard? Why is nobody coming to Portland to be like, "Hey, I want to I you know, I think I can win there." Because they know they can't. They that, and they know they won't see the ball. That's going to be interesting this year because Chauncey last year talked about sharing the ball a little bit. Anthony Simons, a young up-and-coming player. How does he play off of Damian Lillard? Can Dame play off the ball a little bit, give a little defensive effort? I, this is a big year, I think, for Damian Lillard 
uh, legacy-wise for me. Now, I know he's a great player. He's going to go down as one of the best Blazers of all time. But like you said, John, what tier is he on? He's definitely closer to 15 in the NBA than five, and I don't think it's really close. Yeah, I I agree that he's – I don't think he's a top eight. I don't think – I think you can start mm. talking about him right around 10, 12, 15. I agree with you. John Morant, greater than or less than Damian Lillard? Less than right now, I think. Less than. James mm. Harden. Oh, come on, less than. James Harden is uh yeah, James Harden. But isn't James Harden gonna have a bounce back year? You think he's think he's got still got something? I think so. I think he's gonna have a nice year. I think he's lost that that quickness, that first step. And it's hard it's hard to put job there because he's only done it for one real year, so Dame. How about Jason Tatum? Tatum's better. Tatum defends and Tatum, we just saw him, even though he was bad in the finals, he was a number one on a near championship winner. So I think Tatum's better. How about Devin Booker? Ooh, that's tough. I think that it's was, close. I think they're that same group. Those yeah. two guys are. I think they're real close. But I'm gonna take. I I think right now, I would take Booker right now. Really? Yeah. I don't think ever Booker's ever showed that you know that killer like Damian Lillard has in the past. I've never seen him just wheel a team. He has a really yeah. good team around him with Chris Paul. Yeah, but Lillard's never won a game in the Western Conference Finals. Let's <laughs> not even talk about the finals. He's not. He's never won a game in the Western Conference Finals. That has to matter and it, when it, it comes to his legacy. And the Game 7 against the Nuggets, he was really bad at that game. Yeah, I think he's such a victim of Neil O'Shea and just those poor teams that were put around him. I really <laughs> Aren't we do. All? We can't, Aren't we can't all? argue that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I think that was a good discussion. I thought that was an actual sports discussion, which I'm not used to in the happy hour. Like, we talked about Lillard, and, you know, it, I do think it's okay to be honest about, you know, who he is as a player. And I know uh, once upon a time on this show, uh, you guys will enjoy this, uh, it was very early in his career in Portland, I, I roundly criticized him and said, look, he's not a – he's a defensive liability, and – I frankly think that the backcourt of C.J. McCollum and Damian Lillard, while it was entertaining on the offensive end of the floor, it was evident to anybody who was watching it. You didn't have to be a basketball expert to know that it's going to be difficult for them to advance deep into the playoffs with that backcourt unless some things happened. And some things happened in that you know they got a great draw in that one playoff run where they got Oklahoma City and then they got Denver and all of a sudden they you know they were they were getting favorable matchups. They got about as far as they could possibly get in that one season. And I remember coming on the radio after that, you got swept by the Warriors. The, and, you know, here it was, Western Conference Finals. They got there at least, and the Warriors just punched them right in the nose. We all saw it coming. The whole world saw it coming. But it kind of felt like this is as good as it gets. And I think that was sad. And, Sean, you said something before the commercial break about, you know, them being a victim, Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum or whoever being a victim of Neil Olshay. Totally agree, because the moves that should have been made were moves that were should have been designed to build around Lillard. And instead, what Neil Olshay was trying to do in Portland all along was craft a narrative that he was a draft expert, that he had drafted all these great players. He had drafted Damian Lillard. He had drafted C.J. McCollum. And he went as far as to go back and sign guys that he drafted, like Al Farouk Aminu, and bring them in and give them minutes that they would not have got anywhere. And he was fortifying his reputation as an executive at the expense 
of the roster. And I think that is really true. Like when you say, you know, a bad executive or a selfish executive in that case can really tank a franchise. And I think the Blazers hit their ceiling. Olshay got his contract extension. Damian Lillard got paid. He's not a real victim. But C.J. McCollum got numbers he probably wouldn't have got on other teams. So did a whole bunch of other guys. And in the end, you know, we, we're watching it now as it's disintegrating. And we're hoping that this season can be entertaining or fun. But I just don't see it, guys. I don't think they're going to be entertaining. I don't think they're going to be fun. I think we're going to be talking in February about whether or not Lillard should be traded. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that... Well, I, I have to push back on the entertaining part. I, I do think that this team's going to be fun to watch, for at the very least, because we just had an awful season, the Blazers did, um, just after, like last year. So it's been a couple of years since we've seen Damian Lillard play, since we've seen a at least decent Blazers team. And so I think for that reason, they're entertaining. And I also think they have players like Anthony Simons, players like Gary Payton II, who's a high flyer, defensive hard worker, Jeremy Grant, you know, Nurkic is back to healthy. I think that is at least entertaining and worth watching. I still think they're an eight or nine seed in the West, but I at least looking forward to the season for watching them. Yeah. I mean, I don't play looking forward to is okay. And, and I think it's, you should look forward to the season. Every fan should enter the season feeling like there's some hope in this season. Otherwise, why are you a fan? But are they going to literally be fun on the court? I don't think the ingredients are there. Steven? Uh, I agree with you, John. I, I don't see necessarily a fun team. Uh, you know, Even last year when the Blazers went on their little like, four or five game winning streak right in the middle of the year, it wasn't like fun basketball they were playing. It's more of a grind, and that's the way Chauncey Billups wants to play. He wants to play with defense. And he wants to play with ball control and move the ball around, and which isn't name. That's not necessarily Damian Lillard's style, right? Like you talked about, Damian Lillard is an ISO guy. He's a pick and roll guy, but he's one of the best pick and roll players in the NBA. So you can't blame him for doing it. But that's not the way Chauncey wants to run his team. So I'm, I am more interested in seeing how the players play off of Damian Lillard and how Damian Lillard can play off the ball a little bit. I, I, he hasn't had to do it in his career. I'm not saying he can't do it. But it's one of those things that it's not one. It's, you can't just easily pick it up, right? You have to really work on it. It's part of the game that you don't talk about much in basketball. When you're playing off the ball, it is a totally different ball game. So I want to see Anthony Simons control the ball and let's see what Dame can do off of it and maybe get him some easy shots. I also think, you know, as I was talking about Olshay's legacy, something struck me too. You know, you were talking about Chauncey Billups, and as you're talking about how he wants to play, I'm thinking about Nate McMillan. And, you know, both of those guys played the guard position, both of those guys were good defenders and good teammates and captains. And you talk about, you know, it's not necessarily a style of play that players love to play and fans are often frustrated by it. Um, I think it is not accidental or not coincidental that Terry Stotts, who's a really good kind of offensive flow guy, uh, I think that it's not coincidental that Neil O'Shea brought that guy in as he was drafting guards like Jamie Lillard and C.J. McCollum. It fit. It helped get those guys' numbers. They were fun to watch at times, but I think you're right. You're watching a franchise that's trying to change directions right now. And that that is going to be the number one thing that is just, if the Blazers are successful, it's that the players grasp the new system. And I think Chauncey can be very successful as a coach. I think he shows some signs, and he's going to have respect from the players, right? You know, he was a guard in the league, former MVP, but can they adjust? Because you talked about Nate McMillan. That wasn't a fun style of basketball. Brand Roy, when he was the best player on that team, was the perfect fit for that system because he didn't want to run. He didn't want to go fast break. He wanted to go half court, 
ISO not back you down and just be taller than you and score, which was awesome. And the Blazers won that way, but that's not the way a lot of fans uh, really enjoy watching basketball. And also to go to your point about Neil O'Shea as a draft expert, John, it wasn't ever talked about like clearly, but you could always get the sense whenever you talk to player or talk to people in the organization when I worked with them that he was never going to trade CJ McCollum or Damian Lillard because he loved the fact that he was the quote unquote draft expert. And you got and he, that. And he, he had control of their minutes. Yeah, yeah. He you got, and you got that sense, and no one ever said it, but like you would hear things that would go around. You're like, oh, okay, well, yeah, they'll never separate those two as long as Neil Shea is in charge. Yeah, and I kept. Looking at the guys that, you know, people would say, well, the Blazers draft players and then they fall in love with them to a fault. Alan Crabb, Myers Leonard, you know, even, you know, and then look at the guys he brought in. It was all designed to make Neil O'Shea look good and make his, the guys that he had on the court, like, you know, he didn't want to bring anybody in that was going to take shots or minutes away from the guys he drafted. And, you know, it really hurt the franchise. Unfortunately, uh, the Blazers didn't have ownership at the time that, was capable of going look this isn't this isn't working and i think the death of paul allen really prolonged what should have ended probably uh two or three years before it it finally did uh i want you to leave it here you got the bft statewide back to the bald-faced truth with john canzano peter sampson is up next with the pulse from six to seven on 750 the game Tough Timbers coming up in Portland on uh, 750 The Game. I appreciate those of you listening on Eugene on Fox Sports Eugene. Shout out to the audience there in uh, Klamath Falls. If you're listening on 960 AM or in Roseburg on 1490 AM, uh, fist bumped Douglas County. Uh, if uh, you're listening on a podcast, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. We had great guests today. Merton Hanks was with us, the Pac-12's. Director of Football, Associate Commissioner, a Deputy Commissioner of the Pac-12. He joined us in Hour 1. In Hour 2, we visited in a uh, unique interview. We visited with Dan Lanning's father, Don Lanning, who called his son Daniel throughout the interview. Uh, I wrote about Dan Lanning and his family uh, today at johnconzano.com. It was a tricky column to write. Um, it was long. Uh, it didn't feel long when I wrote it and read it, but it was a lot of words and it was a lot of uh, telling stories about Dan Lanning as a kid. First car that he drove, a Ford F-150, uh, how he came to live on a farm of you know six and a half acres with his family, uh, the, the fact that he played in a high school musical, Dan Lanning in a high school musical. Can you imagine Chip Kelly in a high school musical? Mario Cristobal? trying to play the dentist in Little Shop of Horrors? Like, really? This was uh, interesting stuff to me. Helps you kind of understand who Oregon's coach is, but it doesn't answer the question. The question's going to have to be answered on September 3rd. It's going to have to be answered on September 10th, September 17th. Oregon's first three games of this season go like this. At Georgia, and it's a road game. Don't give me this neutral site stuff in Atlanta. It's at Georgia. It's Eastern Washington. And then it's BYU at Austin Stadium. I've talked about week three in that BYU game being pivotal. But let's not forget week two in Eastern Washington. Because let's just say Oregon goes into that opener against the defending national champions and gets knocked out. It happens. First game, we saw it with Chip Kelly. Remember that? Chip Kelly went to Boise State. I was there. LeGarrette Blunt was there, too. It wasn't a pretty sight for Oregon. And, you know, I remember talking to Chip Kelly because they came back in week two. They beat Purdue. People don't remember that. They beat Purdue at home, 
at Autzen Stadium in week two. And I told Chip Kelly after the game, he said, what do you think? Because I had covered Purdue as a beat reporter about six or seven years before that. Chip said, what do you think? Pulled me off to the side of the news conference after the game. This is like, you know, the Duck coaches get up, they do their little news conference, or the Beavers coaches get up and do a news conference. Chip Kelly pulled me aside, and he said, what did you think? He knew that I knew Purdue. I knew Joe Tiller. I had covered Drew Brees when he was a quarterback at Purdue. And I said to Chip, I said, I don't know. I'm not sold on you guys. I don't know. I, I said, I told him I didn't know if Purdue was a bowl team at that time. Turns out Purdue was decent. Oregon went to a Rose Bowl. So I was wrong about that. Chip Kelly was, you know, but I remember Chip's face. He was kind of looking at me like, you know, he didn't know if they were any good or not. And I think over time, you know, you find out, and I, Dan Lanning said this in the piece. He said, like, you don't know if your team's any good or not. And you don't really know. Like, the preseason magazines don't know. The players themselves don't know. You've watched your team scrimmage against your team. You don't know. And especially if you were a first-time, first-year head coach, like Lanning is, like, you know, he comes in a little bit like Chip Kelly. He comes in a little bit like Mark Helfrich. Uh, you know, Willie Taggart and Mario Cristobal had been head coaches, but, you know, they were very different animals. They were recruiters more than anything, if you really look at it. Um, and I think it's going to be really interesting. And I think Dan Lanning has to be a little bit, I'm not going to say he's nervous because I don't know him well enough to say he's nervous. I'm going to say he has to be a little uneasy in watching, especially the scrimmage over the weekend where the offense threw four picks, didn't look good. Defense looked great. But I think he has to be a little uneasy going into this first game because you just don't know. You don't know if your team's any good. And you're going to find out in front of everybody. So, you know, again, as Don Draper in Mad Men says, that's what the money's for. That's why these coaches are getting paid. But I can tell you, like, I was really pleased last night. Like, you know, Dan Lanning's busy. You know, I've, I've been in contact with him. I talked to him on Sunday. But, you know, I was pleased last night as I noticed on – Instagram that late last night Dan Lanning posted a little video of his sons in the kitchen they're playing a game together and dad said it's never too late to compete he's in the middle of fall camp and he's spending time with his kids it's very relatable it's interesting he's different he's not Mario Cristobal he's not kind of the bumper sticker you know mantras and the Navy SEAL talk he's not Chip Kelly you know he's more down to earth and a little more cordial than that he's not Mark Helfrich he's more of a uh, of a, a real person than that. But I think it's going to be interesting to see what Dan Lanning does this season. Leave it right here.